0: to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles. Welcome. This is episode two of the Hidden Gems and Unsung Masterpieces series. My guest today is the brilliant and acclaimed singer songwriter and film and TV composer, Michael Penn. Michael also happens to be the husband of one of my previous guests, the fabulous Amy Mann. I was thrilled to have Michael on the podcast because I love his music, and so I was intrigued about what songs would make his list. And so, without further ado, this is Michael Penn. She hopes we Michael, thank you for being here. How are you today?
1: I'm doing well. How are you?
0: I'm pretty good. It's Friday. It's beautiful. So we're doing uh, a Hidden Gems and Unsung Masterpieces series today, and we've got a dynamite list of songs to cover. Um, I'm really looking forward to this. But before we jump in, I have to ask you about Get Back, because I had the great fortune of having your brilliant and insanely talented wife, Amy Mann, on the show. And uh, she was a superstar guest with really incredible insights. People are loving her episode. I I loved her episode. Yeah. But she also said to me that although you guys uh, largely agreed with your takes on Get Back, she identified you as the resident Beatles nerd.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So,
1: yeah. well, you know, I mean, it's like this is why it's a little odd to sort of be even assessing this stuff, because there's a part of me that feels like it just it just sucks me back into childhood. And and the Beatles were my Pokemon. I mean, what I know <laughs> yeah. is like, you know, finding stats on some, you know, mythical creatures kind of. A yeah. Thing. Yeah. So, I mean, I haven't it, it's been a while since I've like read a book about them or anything. But, you know, I I was a nerd for the music for sure.
0: For
1: sure. I think, and I also think that, you know, as, as music evolves and, and those, I, I kind of look at, at them in a way, I've always looked at them as this group that sort of established these basic patents that people have then, you know, taken on and used and developed further. And you just, you, you, you still hear their influence. I mean, it's, it's really remarkable.
0: Yeah, and what I find is that I'm shocked that the more and more I dive into them, The more interesting they are, you know. You'd think that they would get boring, but it's just I'm I'm continually fascinated by what they've done.
1: Yeah, and and the get back film sort of adds a new whole layer to it because the seeing being a fly on the wall and seeing their interpersonal dynamic and then sort of relating that to what they were actually writing about it's is is an entirely new little facet for me.
0: Okay, so let's talk about. Get back for just a few minutes, if you don't mind. So, what was what was surprising to you?
1: Well, I had a pretty good working knowledge of those sessions. I mean, I, I when I saved up my allowance and lawn mowing money as a kid, <laughs> I had the good fortune of having, you know, uh, a record store that had bootlegs. So I, I I got you know a lot of that that stuff on vinyl and and was just mining it and listening to it. But I think that the thing that was the most surprising. Obviously, there's the whole thing about, you know, how the original Blade of Beef film was like a dirge. And in fact, it literally starts with a dirge, with that thing McCartney's playing on piano. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, mm-hmm.
1: And, and it's it, felt, it felt really gloomy. And this certainly did feel, you know, it was the other side of what was going on for sure. And, and the, the vibes between them was great.
0: Uh, for having a full-time photographer in there, I don't think the photography is that great. And, you know, they talked about blowing up, you know, the film to let it be and it looking fine. It did look grainy and dark, you know, it didn't look fine, actually. Um, and I, I find like it's got that darkness in general, the photos from this time that you almost lose how fashionable and cool they looked in, oh, yeah. in, in actuality.
1: I think the thing that was the most surprising was the John Lennon in Get Back Seems like a much much younger guy than the John Lennon in *A Hard Day's Night*. It seems like his command of the band was gone, and he felt it felt he felt a bit lost, and he felt younger. I don't know. I don't know how to describe it other than that. Uh, part of it probably is, you know, he's not in a suit, but mm-hmm. but there's something there's a, there's a gravitas that he has in *A Hard Day's Night*. That 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 kind of is gone, in 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 Get Back. I mean,
0: he's a cockiness.
1: Maybe that's it. That's a that's that's a part of it. And I think and I think it probably is the result of you know. I mean, he described it as you know his his ego had been destroyed by LSD. So I think I think he was in the process of trying to build himself back up still, and you can kind of sense it.
0: Um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're going to talk about this, I think, with one of the songs or a couple of the songs that that we're going to discuss today. So we'll go further into that. But that's a, an interesting point. He seemed very sure of himself and who he was in a Hard Day's Night. Mm-hmm. And this, I don't necessarily see it as a bad thing, though, because I think that was fairly brittle. Oh, you know? I, so, I, totally,
1: I totally agree. I just, the striking thing to me was was how that facade that he had. Mm mm-hmm, Mm hmm was was just felt older and he felt younger and in, in, yeah I and mean, the yeah. other thing for me was this is I'm gonna one of my one of the Beatle nerd aspects to, <laughs> to to my appreciation of them has a lot to do with the technical aspects I mean I was, I was as much a Jordan right. Martin fan as, as I was a Beatle fan yeah and, Great. and it was really interesting to me to find out uh, why Paul stopped playing the Rickenbacker bass because that was he, he played the Rickenbacker through from 65 all the way through um, uh, the White Album. And then suddenly, he, he, and, I, and, he, and he talks about it. There's two things. One is that it was lighter, and this was going to be a live show, and he wanted to play a lighter bass. And the other thing was that I think the nut was backwards, and the strings were popping out or something. But it's yeah. it it always been a mystery to me, and that sort of explained it, so it was kind of interesting.
0: But is the problem that there's something wrong with that bass at that time? Like, it, you know, because he's been successfully using it.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So, what's the problem? Like, why did something just happen to it? Or is so it I, used- my,
1: my theory is that he put these black tape flats, flat wound strings on it, and they're much thicker strings. Yep. So they weren't, the bass wasn't designed for those strings and they started popping out because later when he starts using it again with wings, he sticks the other strings back on.
0: I see. Okay. So okay. Well, that's good. Cause I, I was, I was surprised when I was looking at it. It was like, does Paul not know how to use this bass? Well, sure. he does kind of come <laughs> up like, what's this button do? <laughs> okay. Did you know one of his bases? I'm sure you know this, but one of his bases was stolen in that period. Oh, wow. Oh, that's right. One of the Hoffners was. I yeah. right about that. Like yeah. his original one. Yeah that one wherever it is is probably worth some money. I would think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I found one of the things in Get Back that hasn't really been addressed is how important the George Martin presence is. I know he this is one of the albums that he wasn't really present in terms of producing them, but just you you can see the relief on at least Paul's face. Oh, <laughs> I yeah. think when he's around yeah. and you know he's like I'll fix you, you know what I mean? That must have been such a reassurance cuz they didn't have enough support around them.
1: Yeah, well I mean I think they I think they and particularly Paul were very dependent on him and he took sort of an overseeing role and let it be or we're get back but um Glenn Johns did most of the sort of the the actual you know mechanical part of production. Yes. And and I think that part of the reason for Martin was he didn't have his normal tools at hand. He couldn't do what he normally does cuz they weren't working at EMI I mean, none of them knew what this thing was going to be anyway. Right, so they didn't right. know if they, ultimately they were going to be on an island somewhere or on a yacht yeah, or whatever. Yeah. So, you know.
0: Yeah. Well, I must say his attitude was incredible. You know, you might have seen some diva behavior on from anybody else, but he's just so cool about the whole thing. You know, yeah, supportive
1: he, and amazing. He He always struck me as the guy that should have played Bond.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, my God. He was the James Bond of the Beatles. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I guess let's move on to our songs. So we're starting in the early days here, which I'm finding is a great thing. You know, this is our second episode of this uh, series, and I got a lot of feedback about, like, thank you for doing some of the early songs. So people will be happy, I think, that we're going back to the early songs. Oh, cool. And the first song you chose is...
1: Any time at all. Yeah. I um, I love that song. I love that record. I'll make that distinction. Um, to me, that was their first... Hard Day's Night was their first truly great album. And the... I don't know. The, the song... It's like their early stuff. A lot of what they were writing was 12-bar blues-based rock songs, some country-western stuff. Mm-hmm. And then they started getting, you know other influences coming in like the Everly Brothers and Tama Motown and they were sort of finding ways to sort of coalesce all these forms but given the power of a rock song and this song kind of coalesces all that stuff that they had been developing into this new thing and I don't remember if Lennon dismissed this track because he dismissed it. Yes he did. I'm sure he did. Um, I know he didn't finish it I know they went Mm -hmm. to the studio and I don't think he had written the bridge, which is why you have this sort of instrumental section in the middle eight, Mm -hmm. but it's a fucking house on fire. It starts with a sound that I thought I I always assumed was the drums. On listening to it, I don't think it's drums. I think it's the sound of a door slam because it doesn't, when it repeats, it doesn't sound the same. So it starts with this, this sound of like this just (laughs) thunderous thing. And then it takes off like a house on fire. Yeah. And uh, Lennon's vocal is amazing and powerful, Incredible. and um, and I find it hysterical that the second line, he, he McCartney takes the second anytime at all because yeah. it's probably out of John's range. Yeah. So yeah McCartney yeah. just steps in and takes
0: it. <laughs> How um, nice for him to be able to, I'll just write that. He can do it. And it's
1: got these beautiful Rickenbacker 12-string chiming counterpoints and um, and it's uh, also it's, this is an, this is something that I've never uh, I'm sure somebody's written about it, but when you hear or see the early days of this band, when they're playing the Cavern Club, um, you know they're a four-piece rock band, mm-hmm. and at some point, um, they got these Gibson J160 acoustics, and the sound of the early stuff is so driven by those guitars. Which who who suggested that to them? I mean, that's that's a studio. That's once they hit the studio, they got those,
2: mm. and
1: and it's such a part of their sound. And it's weird because they're they're an early hybrid guitar. That's this. I'm, I'm exposing my gear nerd stuff now.
0: It's great because you're not going to get that from me. So great, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they,
1: they, it's a, it's a, it's, a, it, it's there are these acoustic guitars that had early. Electric uh, capacities. They had a pickup mm-hmm. in them. So, in order to make that work, they made these guitars out of plywood. So, they don't really sound great acoustically. And I think that they probably, at least in the early stuff, they were running them through amplifiers for some of the stuff at least. But the thing about them is that even though they don't sound great acoustically from a traditional standpoint, they're extremely percussive because they don't really sing out like a, an acoustic guitar that has a spruce top with. That moves and stuff so it's they're doing they're they're like with Ringo in the drum section as much as they are anything else and it's just an amazing sound um so that's a big part of this song and there's also you know their palette of instruments was developing and some of the earlier things that they just suddenly put into songs that just even when I was a little kid, caught my ear, were like, uh, what was the song that had timpani? Is it uh, What You're Doing or Every Little Thing? One of those two have, have has a, a timpani in it. And this song has piano. They didn't use a lot of piano in the early days. Mm-hmm. And so the piano is doing these counterpoint-based things, and, and and it takes the middle eight section. And it's it's. I just think it's a, an incredible song. That's, to me, it's like that's the DNA for... All jangle pop, all yeah yeah, yeah. invasion. Like this is the proof coin of that style of music, and I love it.
0: Yeah, yeah. The, the Beatles were like little magpies. Like every time they found something new, mm-hmm. like a new sound, new new instrument, they would bring it and try it. You know, right. which is great. It is notable for that shot of adrenaline. You know, the early songs really have an energy. Yeah. That. The later songs don't necessarily have, you know, I guess things progress, but there, I, there's something so addictive about that adrenaline. I honestly think it's the combination between John and Paul's energy sort of buzzing between, well, it's not just the two of theirs, but all of their energy buzzing. But I'm just thinking about the, their, um, their vocals. Yeah. But it's just, it's so exciting.
1: Yeah. Well, I think, and I think that the change happens sort of concurrently with, with them not being a live band.
0: Mm. And going
1: mm-hmm, more into mm-hmm. the studio and developing stuff there first, because because it it it's, the energy is is part of what their stage show was, you know, and really playing off each other.
0: Yeah, and I think you hear the energy, the excitement of you know, being young and excited about this whole thing too. I yeah, mean, it's absolutely. just incredible. It's incredible. The impact of both their voices is really interesting. I think I read that this was out of John's range, but Paul does jump in there. And it actually has an impact because this is John's story, but Paul kind of supporting him makes it to me, the listener sounds like he's really saying, yes, he does. Believe him. And yeah. it's kind of like, they're a force, you know, like I believe the two of them and, yeah you know, they're kind of, yeah, exactly. And it's kind of like, she loves you. You get the sense that they're young, best friends that are kind of supporting each other. And it's fun. Like I get why the Beatles as a unit was so intoxicating, you know, it's just, there's something that about the power of them together. I sometimes get the sense that they're actually speaking to each other, like playing to each other. I don't think the song is to each other, but I can hear them kind of smiling to each other when they're doing this kind of thing too. Yeah. And uh, I think, like you said, John's voice, John's voice and mannerism is notably different to your earlier point that this is a very confident, cocky John with a raspy voice and it's very cool. And I find this John as genuine. As I know he probably would place more value. I know he definitely placed more value on his later songs, but I don't know. These songs to me are so deeply felt too, you
1: okay. know? Well, that's the thing. I mean, their early stuff, even though the lyrics are very simple, yeah, um, they're often just um, uh, declarative statements, Yeah. Now, individual little declarative statements <laughs> yeah. and, and, and talking to a girl or, or mm-hmm. you know, whatever. The, the best of that stuff, it's not all of it, but the best of that stuff, you could put up against the Great American Songbook. I mean, they're simple, but they're love songs and they're great. And yeah. they always had heart and they always had wit. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. They, they, you know. That changes, I guess, post Dylan. But they they started doing some interesting things with the form very
0: early on to me. Yeah. And I think this song is interesting too, because it actually showcases the very lovely side of John. You know, a very sympathetic side of John. Like, to me, this sort of straddles between being a romantic song and a friend song, you know? Because I guess he's saying that he will be there for this person no matter what, and he wants to be the one that she calls. But it's very sympathetic, you know? Like, whatever you're going through. Yeah, yeah. And they're almost like, this is almost more... Paul's wheelhouse in terms of being sympathetic empathetic but you know I think this is true to who John was and it's it's very lovely you know
1: yeah it's a very sweet song
0: yeah and I I actually like the little middle eight that is just instrumental you know I I know I read that they didn't have time to finish it but I actually quite like it just being you know I I don't know To me, it yeah. doesn't need lyrics. Uh, no. I,
1: I think it's great, and it also because it has a texture that they that they hadn't really used up to that point in the piano. It's just it's just a sign of development that 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 um, uh, makes a statement to me that they're they're using the studio now. They're starting to like think about that kind of stuff. or At least George Martin is pressing them to think about that kind of stuff. Yeah.
0: Okay. Do you have any other comments about this one?
1: You know, of, 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 of the of the songs that sort of started that that sound that they made I like this record better than I should have known better. I like this record better than a Hard Day's Night The Hard Day's Night is still based in a 12-bar blues form This is mm-hmm. new. This is, like, mm-hmm. this is like using folk elements but giving it a, a really powerful beat I mean, it, it's. I think it's great
0: Progress. Cool So we have another song from the same album. Your next song is You say you will
3: If I have to go You'll be thinking of me Somehow I will know Someday when I'm lonely Wishing you weren't so far away Then I will remember Things we said today You say you'll be mine, girl
0: till the end of time things we said today
1: yeah um you know this is this is mccartney really kind of starting to take a big step up i i always sort of felt like because i had read about the value in their competition um that they felt yes absolutely how and i really think that i don't know who was first but this song of McCartney's and I'll Be Back of John's are them going, I'm gonna write a fucking minor song.
2: Yeah.
1: I'm gonna write a song that's in a minor key, that doesn't just use a minor chord, but that, that, that revels in the minor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and this one, I just, I just love it. I mean, it's, in, it's very sophisticated songwriting. There's a, I think there's a ninth chord in it, <laughs> which is mm-hmm. like another little moment where you go, okay, this, this is developing. Um, but there's that transition from minor to major in the bridge mm-hmm. that's just really powerful and unexpected. Me, I'm
3: just lucky guy. Love to hear you say that love is love. Though we may be dead, love is here to stay, and
4: that's
1: enough to make it. He's writing personally, and it's not just declarative statements. Mm hmm. Uh, he had what did he say about this song? That it was um, future
0: nostalgic. Future nostalgia, which is such a great conceit. To <laughs> Talked totally. a
1: song about that. I mean, that's, it's just it, it's just a really it's like a guy who's who's really thinking about how songwriting can can be really interesting and and it's and it's the sophistication that, that I that I really appreciate. Also, it it's every once in a while McCartney. Will do something where melodically, the modality of what he's doing has this Middle Eastern aspect to it.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: mm-hmm. And as a half Jew, I appreciate that. <laughs> um, but he's got it in a few songs. Fixing a Hole has it. Your Mother Should mm-hmm. Know could be a Klezmer mm-hmm. song, <laughs> as, much as, <laughs> as much as it's t- you know uh, Tin Pan Alley or whatever. Uh, it is. But it, it, yeah, he's got he's got this this thing that happens sometimes that, that I really appreciate.
0: What about Those Were the Days? Is that? I don't
1: think you know? he wrote that.
0: No, he didn't. But just he oh. he championed that one. Oh, yeah. Know?
1: I mean, that's absolutely has that vibe. Yeah.
0: I, I think this one's really interesting. Like, I, I actually I'm loving this series because it makes you really right. dig deeply into these songs. And I was thinking to me, this is such an like this is a really complicated song because it almost the sound of it almost sounds like a cautionary tale uh-huh. you know what I mean like it, it's interesting because it sounds um it sounds a little bit sinister or you know what I mean I guess it's the minor part of yep. it
2: yep.
0: that it's um it almost sounds like it's a warning you say
3: you'll be mine girl till the
0: that's how it sounded to me, almost. Even the things we said make it seem like that's where it's going. And I'm looking through you. Paul goes, why tell me why did you not treat me right? Love has a nasty habit of disappearing overnight. Like yeah, that's how it line. feels like it's going that way. Yep. You know, you say you will love me. But then when it gets to, uh, I guess, the middle age, it doesn't. And I, I suspect it's because Paul's quite in love at that point. All of a sudden it goes into something very positive. And when I actually looked at the lyrics and thought about it, it was like, it doesn't totally make sense, this song, you know? It's, I'm not quite sure why when they're deep in love, they're gonna be thinking about things that they said today. It really seems like it should be going somewhere else, but it's lovely. It almost to me seems like, um, like it plays out like being in love is, you know, when you're first in love, it's kind of scary and kind of exciting right. and then it's good. And then it goes to back to being uncertain again, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, or, I mean, I, I think there's a, a number of ways you can sort of read it, and um, the question is, are the people who are reminiscing about the things that they said back then, are they still together? I guess that's the question. Because they don't necessarily have to be together, and they can still reminisce about it. So I don't know whether yeah. he was seeing the end of the relationship, or wondering about the end of the relationship, and any of that sort of was in there, but...
0: Well, that's the thing is it's like he sees the element of danger, I guess, because, you know, they're not together. You know, you'll be thinking of me somehow. I will know. You know, it's this there's this sense that they're going to be apart. Yeah. And you know what I mean? So it's almost like he's thinking through, like, is this going to work? And then I guess he wants it to because in the next section, it's very, um, very positive, you know, deep in love. So, yeah, when I actually put it together, because this song to me has always been a little bit complicated, like, is he going there? And, and he doesn't. He goes somewhere positive.
1: Yeah, or well, at least in the bridge he does for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he's yeah. still seeing, like, blue skies for them, but I, I think there's this sense that it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a challenge. Yeah,
1: maybe he was conflicted
0: Yeah, yeah. I don't necessarily want to read autobiography into every song, but I think it's interesting to look at the context. Like he wrote this while on a vacation with Jane. And, you know, it's what their relationship was like, actually. And I think she has been underrepresented in the literature, the, the thinking. About Paul at this time, I read an article about her in 1967 when she was traveling in the States. It was a great article. And she said she loved to wake up every day and she put on classical music. She wasn't a huge pop fan. And it's kind of like, if that's your girlfriend, you're probably going to want to write some stuff that is going to impress her you know right. so, so you know it's probably why Paul is trying to integrate some of this stuff into his writing you know he said that he was really excited like to share his new baby which was his new song right. with the rest of them and i got to think that like apparently Linda loved rock right. and so you know it's just like you, you're kind of thinking of your audience
1: absolutely and and i also wonder if musically I, I have to check this, but I know that um, back to the Middle Eastern aspect of it, there's 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 some kind of there's some kind of similarity to to Sunrise Sunset, the the from Fiddler on the Roof, '64, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering if that entered in because because I'm sure the Ashers were hip to Broadway theater music. Oh yeah, yeah.
0: that's true. He was willing to be educated. Yeah. Uh and led by the, the Ashers. The Ashers, the impact of the Ashers, I think has been underexplored. Absolutely. Yeah. There is when you look at a lot of Paul's really, really famous songs, there is an element of exuberance or positivity and nostalgia in them, you know. And I always wonder if this is an element like even the fact that he's attracted to that kind of music. I wonder if that there's an element of His mother's death being sort of in, like, there is a slight sadness to Paul that is not necessarily on the surface of his personality. Mm -hmm. I feel like an aspect of his personality that shows up in his music.
1: Yeah, no, for sure.
0: I, I mean, there's loss.
1: You know, there's 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 sadness and loss to both those guys, and they and it both and it comes out in different ways, but it comes out.
0: Yeah, sure. I, I remember uh, reading a, um, a quote. I wish I could find it again from Barry Miles, who just said that that John and Paul were in part connected by sadness. Right. Which you know, I don't know if that's true or not, but certainly this element of loss.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Okay, so uh, anything else to say about this?
1: It's just, it, I think it's you know one of one of their best early early tracks.
0: You know, Dylan did a cover of this.
1: Did he? He did. Wow. <laughs> That's interesting.
0: Do you think it's Dylan inspired?
1: Um, Paul was on to Dylan before John was, so it's possible. Yeah. Um, you know, it wouldn't surprise me because, you know, the idea of, I don't know, he's probably thinking more about lyrics. I mean, you know, future nostalgia yeah, yeah, yeah. As, a, as a general concept is, is thinking about lyrics.
0: Yeah. Know? There's an album called The Art of McCartney. And um, he did Things We Said Today. And I I listened to it in preparation for this. And it is awful. Oh,
2: God.
0: (laughs) It is unlistenable. I mean, I'm sorry, people, if you like it. I find it unlistenable.
2: Oh, that's too bad.
4: You see.
0: Okay, so the next song that you selected was... She said she said oh uh, yeah yes so
1: yeah so, i think i think that i probably told you that um in my teens i was definitely a jean jacket um <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and uh one of the reasons why i think was that while paul was developing a sophistication in songwriting in one direction john was developing sophisticated songwriting in another direction that that is particularly sort of attractive to musicians i think and it has to do with this song as well as like rain Mm -hmm. are they they float without a groove there there there's there's something going on with with the way he wrote these songs that inspired ringo to to play almost like a classical percussionist Mm -hmm. and um it's an amazing song and it's uh it's really radical and inventive structurally and he Ringo is playing over the bar lines and it's it's creating this spine that just kind of floats all over the place um there's an there's a point where you know it's going on in 4-4 and there's a bar of 2-4 so there's a weird time shift in it Mm -hmm. and it just really appealed to me and and sort of was was one of the hardest rocking songs they they ever did. The g- sound of the guitars on that uh, track is just remarkable, and you know lyrically it's it's a bit of a goof, <laughs> you know it's
2: uh-huh. it's
1: you know a, a Peter Fonda line or whatever that story is. Yeah. Um, but it's just it's just a magical track, and it and it's it, it and rain are sort of of a piece to me.
0: You know, it, it's an interesting element to L- Lennon's writing. His way of writing benefits from allowing other people to contribute to his music. Like you know, so many of his songs are elevated by the group contribution. In in some ways, in in the way that McCartney's aren't. And sometimes I wish that McCartney had allowed a little bit more, or maybe they're not as open to interpretation. But things like um you know, Strawberry Fields, or I Am the Walrus, or um Happiness with well, a Warm Gun. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think that
1: that um you're absolutely right and i and i think that it, it became it became more and more important as lemon fell apart more and more because he was i mean if you listen to his demo of strawberry fields it sounds like a sid barrett song it's so messed up i mean just it, when i say messed up i don't mean i don't mean bad i mean it's just it's erratic and weird and yeah. and and kind of all over the place and how are you going to make this work and how you're going to make it gel and i really think that. Paul and George Martin were the main ones who stepped up and and helped craft these things yes, into the I masterpieces agree. that they are. And uh and and I think John admits as such because he complained about it. How all of his stuff, how you made me do all these weird avant-garde <laughs> things with my songs And you know and us jean jackets are going, "Hey, wait, what? <laughs> we thought you were responsible for that." <laughs> so, it's, you know yeah
0: no, I think that's right i mean and and but I think that's why John complained about them and that's why I think he wanted to move away from the use of george martin
2: yeah
0: and and you know um didn't want paul to be so influential because I think it made him insecure that you know these are my genius songs and they're not completely me yeah but you know he brought something so original and amazing i like, think that's the thing is I wish I wish that Paul and George got more credit for these songs, but also it doesn't diminish John.
1: Oh, not at all. I mean, he, you know, whether he whether he later disowned it or not, he said yes at the time. He liked what was happening at the time.
0: Yeah. Oh so, my God. And damn, he should he should be impressed with himself for inviting that level of creativity and thanking God that Paul and George, you know, stepped up and were so willing to play.
1: Yeah. yeah, Absolutely and the playing is just fantastic on all of that stuff and it's so know, inventive
0: so inventive but yeah on George Martin like George Martin should get a lot of credit on some of John's incredibly famous songs you know
1: yeah i mean yeah. George Martin strikes, strikes me as the kind of guy who who would be absolutely fine just knowing that he did it
0: yeah thank <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, something even like uh, Day in the Life. I mean, I don't like reading that it's a John song because that is like the ultimate collaboration between the two of them, you know? Yeah. And that and Week J- right out yeah Week out. Yeah. Those two. Yeah. Uh, and how sympathetic does Ringo have to be to be able to deal with John's erratic time changes and do it amazingly?
1: Oh, just it's just remarkable playing. I mean, it's truly, truly amazing.
0: Yeah. You know, I want to say something about being a jean jacket. I mean, you know, as I said to you, like people that actually can recognize they were jean jackets and have, you know, progressed, I think are the greatest because you have to be so open-minded, but also I don't want to not continue to give John all the credit in the world. Oh, it's okay. just, you know what I mean? Like it, it, you know, I think sometimes it's viewed as, well, you know, you're being biased towards Paul. It's like, no, I want to give Paul credit and I want to make him an equal part of the story, but let's also bring some other parts of John to the forefront, you know?
1: Well, I think, I think the whole, I think the whole, you know, up to rubber soul when he was really truly leading the group, you have to, he has to, he, he's, he's the predominant person. I mean, to me, the, to me, the, 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 the delineation point for me is is yesterday, because I think I think the success of yesterday freaked him out.
0: Absolutely.
1: I think it, I think it really I think that was I think that may have led to a lot of his abuses and stuff. But I think it, I think it really freaked him out. Yep. After that point, Lennon and Brian Epstein convinced Parlophone not to release it as a single. Yeah. He didn't want it released as they didn't want it released as a single. I don't know where Paul was in that discussion, but but apparently that's that's when it went down. But Capital in America released it, and it was a yeah. huge fucking hit. Yeah. So I, I I when you get to the next single, what is it? Is it Paperback Rider? No. It's a double-A single. It's like John had every A-side up to that point just about, or most of the lion's share of them. Uh-huh. And then I think, I can't remember what it was. I think it might have been uh, Day Tripper.
0: Yeah, but... I would like to push back against one thing because yep. they weren't necessarily John singles. A lot of them were Lennon McCartney singles.
1: Well, that's true, but I think they were predominant. They were they were of the collaborations. They were John predominant because he certainly he sang them.
0: Well, like um, I want to hold your hand. She loves you. Uh, we can't Find me love. Those well, are can't all. Can't buy me
1: love is Paul. Yeah.
0: Well, the other two were half half.
1: Yeah, I know.
0: I'm just saying, like there is. I don't subscribe to this notion as much. I get the fact that John was very dominant and he had probably the power in the group at this point. Well, that's my main
1: that's my main point. And I think and I think that the success of yesterday um you see things happen after that point that kind of make you go, "Oh, John's starting to feel very insecure here." Yeah. So after so after yesterday, the next single um is is we could work it out which was going to be the a-side because because parlophone thought that was the more commercial of the two yeah and lennon i think fresh from this thing with yesterday, you know he announces that it's going that the a-side is going to be day tripper yeah um because he felt like the other song was too soft like like yesterday was soft and he was trying to get the band like an image thing of like yeah yeah, hard rocking people yeah yeah so so it became the first double A-side single. And, and it's just like, okay, there is a power shift going on here.
0: Yeah. 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 I mean, here's the thing is that I've said this, uh, and it's a bit controversial, but Brian helped John a lot in, in terms of his position. Okay. You know, like John, yeah. John, John was producing magnificent work. So it's not like it's a bad thing. But it also, we're going to talk about McCartney and Martin. And I think that you know McCartney and Martin were a bit of a force, but you know John was helped by Brian. No question,
1: no question. Yeah, you know Brian was 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 in, from the beginning an uh, an early sort of advocate of John as leader. So
0: well, there's an interesting shift when Brian signs on because before that, Lennon and McCartney were. You know, if you read Chris Salovich's book, he talks about them when they come back from Hamburg, that really they're seen as co-leaders mm. you know, because they're musically on stage, probably behind, you know, behind the scenes. John is, you know, the most influential but musically and on stage.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: There was a bunch of people that said it was interchangeable. They both were,
1: you know. I think internally they, they still felt John was the leader. I mean, even up to the get back thing in the flower pot conversation you can hear mccartney talk, saying you're you're the boss you're the, you know you're the you're the leader of this band so it i think that 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 sort of myth you know stayed with them even after brian died but it, it it wasn't the reality
0: well that's the thing is that's the thing is paul says that but john has just come in and said you know i have to get over my jealousy to be mm-hmm. here for you to be here and so there's things that at play you know, I think McCartney also knows how to play Lennon, but you're right. He still does do that. And John does have authority. Yeah. But so does Paul. It's kind of like, you know, this sense of like, okay, I will give you authority and let me run things, mm-hmm. you know? And so I don't know. I personally think it's shared. But, you know, that's kind of part of their their tug of war, you know?
1: Right. Yeah, right. I think he needs it increasingly as, as, he, as, the time, as time goes on.
0: Yeah, and I I love your point about yesterday being a turning point for them, you know?
1: Right, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I I have a few notes about, she said, she said, um, first of all, I agreed with you that it is, it's so cool sounding, you know, and in in terms of its position on Revolver, Revolver is such an incredibly diverse album. It's weird because Revolver has this breadth of sound you know from Eleanor Rigby to Tomorrow Never Knows to this song and Love You Too and Yellow Submarine like it's got this breath but yet it doesn't sound disjointed you know like for some reason it doesn't sound like it's a bunch of different songs there is a cohesiveness but I love this song being on that album like just like you yep. said the heaviness of it yep and like you said the the lyrics of it really are a goof like it literally is like listening to two people on acid confused and muddled and going in circles you know oh, and yeah.
3: <laughs> you don't understand what I said I said no no no
0: But when you're listening to it and you're younger, you're just kind of like, I don't know what they're talking about, but it sounds cool. It just sounds different. And it sounds interesting, you know? Totally.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, just on your point of um, Revolver starting to sort of have these songs that sort of take on really, really distinctive identities and yet it all sounding cohesive. To me, that's mm-hmm. like that's like the great aspect to, to their psychedelic period because to me what psychedelia really was, at least in their hands, was eclecticism. And you could be a nineteen twenties English music hall, you yeah. could be a, a a grungy electric rock powerhouse, you could yeah. be um, you could be anything and it was cool. Um, and you can do that if you have an identity, if there's a, if there's a through line of an identity. You can do that all on one album, and that's what they started to do.
0: Why does it sound less cohesive on the White Album, do you think?
1: Because I don't consider that album psychedelia. I think psychedelia ends with mismatch mystery tools. The White Album is them trying to sort of strip it back down again. Yeah. And so the remnants of that eclecticism maybe aren't quite, maybe it doesn't quite work when you're trying to go the opposite way. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I think the one one little tiny bit of psychedelia uh, is Glass Onion, yeah. where he's kind of you know where John is kind of catching us up to speed there.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's I think there's aspects of, of several songs that I could. I I personally don't mind the whiplash of going from I Will to Revolution Number Nine. Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. I don't really I I think it's absolutely entertaining.
0: Yeah, I do too. I love the White Album. I I just think it does sound less cohesive than revolver. And right. I'm a great lover of their psychedelic period too. It's my, if I had to choose one period, it would be mine. Yeah. I think. I like to um, say
1: that Magical Mystery Tour is their Sergeant Pepper. Oh, really? <laughs> well, I love that album.
0: I love that album too. That That's definitely one of my favorites too. Um, okay. So this is an interesting song because this is the one song that Paul didn't play on. It doesn't necessarily mean that he didn't impact you know the thinking behind the, the I production. Know, like, I did it. not
1: realize that he didn't play on it.
0: Yeah, so you know he was he was involved in it. So again, like he could have created the production of it, but at the end of the day, he stormed out of the um, studio and is not on this song. Do you know who's playing bass on it? I imagine it's George. Yeah. Well, uh, I didn't know that. yeah. So the discussion about this song for a long time was that. Paul stormed out because this was an acid song and Paul hadn't done acid, you know? So that was a yeah. lot of the discussion about it. And they said, well, you can't get it. But but it's not true. Paul had already done acid by this period. You know, he had done it by the end of uh, 1965. So he did it, you know, what, six months later than them. And the whole discussion around acid in the Beatledom mm-hmm. world is so crazy because first of all, John and George did not, you know, it's not like they were so open-minded that they decided to try it. They, you know, they had no choice. And then they enjoyed it, which was cool. And then Paul was hesitant, but did it by the end of that same year. I hope that we can sort of dismiss this idea that this was about Paul not taking LSD because at this point they've all taken it. The only thing is, is, I'm not sure McCartney told them that he took LSD because he took it with a different group of people. No, and something like um, got to get you into my life. Like John later said, he's like, I think that's about acid, not pot. And I suspect it is. I mean, it sounds like they, they had been doing pot for a couple of years. And, you know, it's, it's not like Paul's trying to get that into his life at that time. It sounds like it's more about acid, you know, another kind of mind and all that kind of stuff. And so that's not the issue that's going on with this song. Now, in Get Back, when John and Paul are having this secret conversation, which is very long. And it's not between them. It's a number of people. But they mention this song. And it as an example of when Paul had been too forceful with his production. Oh, interesting. Yes. And it's interesting because I don't know if you read this, but this is one that George helped John finish. Huh. Not Paul. And so what happened is... Um, George says this, I was at his house one day, this is in the mid-60s, and he was struggling with some tunes. He had loads of bits, maybe three songs that were unfinished, and I made suggestions and helped him to work them together so that they became one finished song. She said, she said, the middle part of the record is a different song. So that's pretty interesting that, um, you know, basically this is a, a bit of a Harrison Lennon song. Um, and that it's the one song that Paul doesn't appear on. And I think that it reflects a little bit of issues that are going on between Lennon and McCartney at the time. Like this is actually one period that I'm going to delve into is 66, 67, because probably starting with yesterday, frankly, because we know that John had a huge issue with Eleanor Rigby, you know, that Paul unveiled it in front of a group of people and was taking suggestions Uh, from whoever was there, Pete Shot and Ringo, you know, and that deeply wounded John. He talked about it for the next 10 years, you know, but I was standing there and he didn't ask me to like, you know, I think it wasn't honoring to their partnership in John's eyes. Right. And so in this one, for some reason, he's not reaching out to Paul and George stops by. It's not like he asked George, but George stops by. And I suspect There was a little bit of an issue between, like, I'm not sure why McCartney didn't go to Lennon for help with it. I don't know. But Mm -hmm. there's something going on between them. McCartney's running around in the avant-garde scene. Right. You know, Lennon's at home doing his acid exploration. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. You know, I think it's interesting that Lennon was going internal.
1: Well, going internal is one thing. As he described it, he was eating acid.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Well, so, that's a problem. He was yeah. macro, macro dosing. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I think, and I'm from I mean, my memory is I'm old and adult, so I don't remember the the, the stuff that I've read in the, in my youth. But I I do know that that he described it as it was a he did so much acid that there was a complete destruct destruction of his own ego, and that he had to be. I think Pete Shoten was one of the guys who came over to help build him back up, like play him his own records and go, see how great you were. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's a bad trip that he, he found himself.
0: Yeah. Well, again, it's too bad because at that time, uh, they were actually finding that LSD was incredibly helpful for depression. You know, I've, I've heard some, uh, some psychiatrists talk about this that were actually practicing at that time. And they said it was so exciting. And then it became popularized and, it became delegitimized. Oh yeah. And so, That's you know, coming back though. Yeah, yeah, with all the microdosing. And yeah. so, I think that intuitively, like it was probably a good thing for John for a while, but like you said he went way overboard, yeah. you know, to the point where he sort of lost himself.
1: Well, I also think and I also think that 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 it's it's something that can exacerbate issues that you already have. And and if he if he had any kind, I know Amy believes that he had serious mental health issues. I think everybody does. So I'm not, (laughs) I don't give him any particular point for that. But, (laughs) but I think, but I do think that, that if you have, um, if you're, if you're already tender and you have bad experiences with something that powerful, that that can do a lot of damage. It can do lasting damage. And, and I think it did do lasting damage for him.
0: Yeah. Well, especially not while being treated at the same time, you know, like he, he was self-medicating and then didn't necessarily have Someone to help him through it, you know.
1: But he winds up with Janov ultimately, and I mean, that's the thing about Lennon is is that 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 way beyond uh, the other Beatles, well, at least beyond McCartney, he's 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 extremely astute about his own psychology.
0: I love that he's so uh, he's so open to an exploration and so willing, you know. Yeah. Yeah, no, I love that about John. Um, Paul's almost the opposite, like he doesn't want to go there. Yeah. You know?
2: Yeah.
0: And, uh, but, you know, I just talked to another, I have another episode that's coming out, and and he actually said, he identified in some ways with Lennon too, and said that Lennon's seeking, like doesn't, trying to figure out his identity in a way that McCartney doesn't. You know, I'm sure it would have been good for McCartney to do these things too, but I think that Lennon had a Greater gaping wound. I
1: agree. You know, absolutely. Yeah.
0: But also, in the way that this story is always told, it's kind of positioned like Paul's always in traditional Beatles literature that is often ridiculous. It's kind of Paul's kind of seen as not being cool for having, you know, jumped in. But like I said, the others didn't jump in, they were thrown in and then they ended up liking it. And Paul was reticent to do this. And there's a couple of things like I think Paul. probably liked he's writing yesterday. He probably doesn't have the same, you know, gaping wound that John has. So he doesn't have that kind of drive, but also he talks about being afraid of fucking up a good thing, basically, you know, messing up. And he also mentions that he never wanted to go back to the period of hurt from his, his mother. And I think that's kind of like in the lyrics, Paul talks about his mother so much. Yeah. And I think that's been a little underestimated as being part of McCartney's psyche, and maybe why he doesn't want to go there. You know, well, he
1: doesn't. Maybe he doesn't want to go there in conversation or in interviews or in, or in public. But maybe he goes there in private. It certainly, it certainly comes out in his art for sure.
0: I think that whether or not he's conscious of it, it's yeah. coming
1: out. Absolutely. But in terms yeah. of their, in terms of their childhood trauma, what I think what I think Paul, the ramifications for McCartney were. You know, Lenin was middle class. Lennon had Lenin's family had dough, even though even though his mom was living elsewhere and his yeah, father yeah, was yeah. nowhere to yeah. be found. That he they lived in a good part of town. Yeah. And McCartney was way more working class. And when his mom died, she was the primary breadwinner. Yeah. And and he was scared that they weren't yeah. going to have any money. And I think that developed in him a work ethic that Lennon didn't have, and that was his drive, and that continues to be his drive. The fuckers out there doing a tour now. I mean, he does, he's just he's just driven, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yes, an insecurity, a money insecurity that I think has never left him. And he's talked about that recently, mm-hmm. you know. But there is one other element, too, this idea of rising in station. Oh, right. You know, both the parents apparently believe that, that working right. hard could elevate them. And Paul, being super talented from youth, apparently they identified that he could take them out of their situation. Wow. And so I suspect when she died. a heavy burden. I, well, it's a huge burden. I think it's a very heavy burden that maybe goes unrecognized. Yeah. That, you know, she dies and I've got to think, you know, like when when he's gotten awards, he's said that he's still kind of trying to say, is this good enough? You know, yeah. did I did I deliver? Right. You know? And so, yeah, it's a very heavy burden. Yeah. So, well. But but this is a fantastic song and I Love it. And John, this is just like John coolness at his best. Absolutely. You know, when you were talking about John was going in a direction that, that musicians love, what was that? Was it just going in an original way? or Yeah, wh- how would...
1: it's, it's the uniqueness of the, of the rhythm of his songs in that period. And it's the uniqueness of them structurally. Because in the case of Rain and She Said, She Said, there's a pulse that runs through the song. But yeah. Ringo's ignoring it. And John's ignoring it in the way he's strumming his guitar. And so if you divide a song up into bars, they're not like these bars are the rhythm section is kind of carrying over the bar lines. So they're not Mm. like landing down on the beginning Mm -hmm. of every bar. And so it, it just creates it creates something that's really, really unique. And it sort of becomes in a lot of ways, you know, his more experimental stuff. Um, starting with those two songs and then moving definitely through Strawberry Fields and and, and Walrus, it becomes the the sort of the the template for a lot of progressive rock in the 70s of of like dealing with odd time signatures, dealing with Mm. ignoring bar lines, that kind of stuff. So it's it's very inventive.
0: I find that I always like, if I'm going to walk, I generally like John's songs. They just have a, a rhythm. Yeah. Where was McCartney developing? And is this the Baroque pop you were talking well, about? And,
1: and his sophistication comes more in, he sticks with more, more traditional structure in terms of basic verse, chorus, bridge, first chorus, that kind of stuff. Um, but his boundary pushing is more in melody and in, and in chords, and he's using more sophisticated chord changes. John starts to revert back to 12 Bar Blues stuff I mean, and to the point that he actually does a fifties album, because that's where he feels the most comfortable where McCartney is constantly stretching himself in those areas. And, um, so to me, they, they are both pushing, pushing the form, but they're pushing it in different, different ways.
0: Mm, Interesting. That's a great insight. A quick host edit here before we move on. Following this episode, I delve more into the issue of who played bass She Said She Said. It seems like there is a very strong case to be made for McCartney actually being the bassist on this song. It seems likely that he laid down the bass line before he left the session and this is the bass line that was used on this recording. I've been informed that the bass line is almost unmistakably McCartney-esque and none of the other Beatles were listed as having recorded an additional bass track and so McCartney's account that this was the only track he never played on may be erroneous. And it may be connected to the fact that he walked out of the session before it was over. That part seems to be true. So this could be two myths busted about this song. First, the idea that uh, the basis of their argument stemmed from who had taken acid and who hadn't. At this point, we know that they had all taken acid. So it's unlikely that that was the source of any kind of argument between them. And it was more likely something to do with the production of the song. Second uh, is the idea that McCartney does not appear on this track. It seems likely that he actually does. Of course, I don't know this for sure, and I'm sure other people will continue to uh, dig into it, but I wanted to flag this before we moved on. Anyway, back to our discussion. Okay, so uh, moving on here. This is uh, a pick of yours, and it is The Family Way, movie and soundtrack.
1: So yeah, so uh, it's just it's, it just struck me that, that that people who are fans of the Beatles, uh, if they have not seen this, it, it's a film that McCartney and George Martin scored. McCartney wrote a piece of music called "Love in the Open Air," yeah. which is um, a really pretty uh, melody, very very <laughs> uh, swinging '60s yeah. uh, kind of soundtrack. I don't know it reminds me of there's another one from the era that it kind of has a connective tissue with but I can't remember what it is but it's a really pretty piece Martin arranged it for strings and woodwinds and then elaborated on the themes and and scored this film and the Mm -hmm. film is just this this little gem that people don't know about that's that that is really worth seeing it's it's really it's an interesting film and I'm and I I don't know how to really describe it without without giving it away but it's 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 very poignant it's it's like right up there with alfie for me as sort of uh, of that period yeah. uh, although this is even this is even more working class um it's ostensibly sort of about this young couple a, a, who are having some difficulties starting out their marriage and it deals with sex and the evolving concept of masculinity and uh, haley mills is the is the bride mm-hmm. and and so it's this family drama and on the surface it's this sort of light swinging 60s dramedy and underneath it there's there's like this other movie about a buried issue that slowly sort of gets revealed that involves the groom's parents and played it's John Mills and Marjorie Rhodes who's just amazing in the movie um and and I don't want to say what this buried sub-movie is, but (laughs) but I do wonder if something about it resonated with McCartney, but it's definitely worth saying.
0: You know, this actually was an issue between John and Paul, that Paul did this, right? Oh, was it? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. uh, John, for a long time, carried a hurt that Paul did this without him. Wow. Yeah. Which is weird because John went off and did a film. You know, he went off and did How I Won the War. Right. But Paul, you know, this was a break for them, did this with George Martin. And it was George Martin who came and said, do you want to do this? And I I don't know. I guess Paul says later that he didn't realize, like, John was doing his own thing, so why shouldn't he do his own thing? But he said, I didn't really consider that it was right on top of our actual, like, area of work, which is music making, whereas John, you know, did his book and did a film. And so, you know, this is um, a... um, Quote from 1995: The interviewer says um, the Family Way soundtrack was actually the first time you would officially compose outside of the Lennon-McCartney tandem, and Paul says yes. And you know it's funny. That's true. It's funny because talking to Yoko recently, you know, you talk about these things that happen way back in history. It turns out that John was not pleased, but I didn't know till a year ago that he wasn't pleased. He always told me fine because he had been acting in a film. He did a film called How I Won the War. So we started to do little solo things just for a change, just for a break. And so I assumed, I asked him, is it okay with you? And he said, yeah, fine, fine. But Yoko told me that he was actually a little bit put off by that because he probably hoped uh, that I would say Lennon McCartney will write this together. But to me, it just seemed a good opportunity to get away from what I did normally. But Yoko told me apparently John was a little bit hurt about that, which is sad. But we actually did talk about it. He never told me at the time. He probably just covered it up. And then the interviewer says, because that was the first time we could read music composed by Paul McCartney. And Paul said, yes, that's right. For me, it was very interesting because it allowed me to something on my own. Like women these days want to get away from their husbands, get a life of their own. It was a bit of that because with the Beatles, it was a bit like a marriage. It was quite good just to get away and do something on my own. I think if I'd known John was disturbed, I would have just asked him to join me. We could have done that.
2: Mm.
0: And when George Martin talks about this, writing the score, he, you know, he talks about the fact that Paul agreed to it and then was avoiding it like the plague, probably just because he was having fun, you know, not doing any work. Right. But one <laughs> of the times he came over, he said that he literally had to stand over Paul and said, if you don't write it, I'm going to write it. And so I just think it's interesting that um, Paul says he likes the opportunity to do it something. You know, it's always thought that Paul's all in on the Beatles, but here he's expressing that he felt a little bit claustrophobic or needed his own space too, you know?
1: Sure. Yeah. And I think for Lennon, it was probably like, you know, on the heels of of yesterday, seeing your partner having these individual successes, it probably, you know, went on the pile after yesterday, you know what I mean?
0: Exactly. I think this is exactly the, the um, same thing. Yesterday said to John, I suspect, he can be a success without me. That's right. And then this is another step. And then, then Paul and George Martin won a bunch of awards for this too, by the way. Oh, wow. And in yeah. fact... Uh, you know, it,
1: it's, it's like this, it, it, you know, it all goes back to childhood. This is like, you know, he can do this without me. He can exist. He can exist without me. Dad's going to leave. I mean, exactly. it's like, it's, you know, it's it's... Exactly.
0: There it, there it is. Yeah. And um, in fact, this caught wind and um, Brian had to go and make a statement um, to the press that Lennon and McCartney weren't, the Beatles weren't breaking up because Paul was doing this. Wow. And um, there's a uh, audio interview that John gave. This is a bit sad, actually. He's like, Paul has signed us up to do a soundtrack. And then we came out here.
5: Does this mean that all of the boys are going to be trying different things as you go along, John?
6: Well, I can't speak for the others, you know. George has just got back from India, trying India. I saw a picture of him with a mustache the other day, picking up that teacher of the sitar at London Airport. Oh, yeah. He was, he came, he traveled with him, I think, from India. That's his teacher. He flipped over that instrument, didn't he? Oh, yeah. Well, that fellow that's teaching him is one of the all-time greats, you know. So he was lucky that the fellow would accept him as a pupil. He doesn't (laughs) just have anybody, Will you be using the sitar as a regular sound, as a regular part of the future? No, no, I mean, that's, the sitar just happens to have come in useful on a couple of tracks, but it's really nothing to do with it, you know, that's George's own scene. Oh, you know, George will obviously write more numbers where the sitar's involved, if he feels like
5: it. You know what's marvelous, John, in the last couple of years, the wonderful, wonderful songs that have come out of you and Paul, and that really have established you in the complete universal audience as what you always were, great songwriters, you know, Thanks Michelle, you know, and Yesterdays and all this, just wonderful standards. And as you know, everybody's done them from Count Basie to Ella Fitzgerald, which is, <coughs> must be a great satisfaction for you. It, it is, Jen? you know, it's great, it? great doing them, see how they do it too. Because, you know, with the initial, I remember when the first time we met, and as always, when a new group cracks through, the skeptics, the doubters, and so on. To finally, the proof which was always there, finally, you know, everybody realized, hey, wow, these guys really are great songwriters, you know? Something that you knew all the time. But they oh, these marvelous standards You don't know until it happens. But nobody thought you could write songs like Michelle and Yesterday.
6: No, because they, they were too busy just looking at the Beatle image. You know? yeah. there be more
5: ballads like that coming out, you think? Yeah, but this usually, they're always there, you know, they just come out. Do you like the soft things like that? Or, or yeah, albums? I don't like it getting romantic in your old age, is i always had a bit of romantic in me, <laughs> you know. They, I, they, they're so haunting, you know. And I believe it's only the beginning, isn't it, John? In I songwriting.
6: hope so. I hope so. You know, we're only still fairly young, especially as musicians or
5: songwriters. Where's the inspiration come from, or is it just craftsmanship? I mean, can you just sit down at a given time and say, we have to write now, and out it comes? Well, sometimes it comes out, like you know, sometimes they say,
6: now you must write, and now we write. Oh, but it doesn't come someday we sit there for days just talking to each other messing around not doing anything how was Michelle written? Uh, well Paul had this idea about writing a bit with some other language with French in it and he just sort of had a bit of a I don't know a verse and a couple of words and the idea I think he had some other name or something oh we used to call it he used to talk double Dutch French, you see, just to sing the bits. Like, like that. So yeah. he had that. And then he just brought it along. We sort of started fiddling around trying to get a middle eight. We pinched a little bit from somewhere and stuck it in the middle eight. And off we went. What about yesterday's? Yesterday is Paul completely on his own, really. We just helped finishing off the ribbons around it, you know tying it up.
5: When are you going to be doing uh, another tour, do you know?
6: no idea i know we've got music to write soon as we get back and paul's just signed us up to write the music for a film so i suppose it's off the plane and into bed and knock 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 get up and write some songs a film that's not your own yes very exciting uh, all in good time with they've made it now what's the name what's the name of her in it, it Haley mills? mills that's it she's so it. So Bert Bacharach's gonna have a little
5: competition huh
0: uh, it's about time but you know you can hear from paul he doesn't know Don's yeah. kind of like got this facade that he's like, it's fine. It's fine. I know I didn't care yeah, right. about that. <laughs> yeah. Anyways. Okay. Onwards. Well, great choice for both. And it's like, I can't believe I haven't seen that movie. And so thank you for flagging it because well, I, I,
1: I don't think it's actually even been available. I mean, I found, I found a, a copy some years ago, but I think it's now on some streaming services. So I think it's, it's, it's viewable.
0: Did you know that uh, Hayley Mills and uh, George Harrison went on a date once? I have a vague
1: hint <laughs> of a memory of something, reading something about that. I think Haley Mills wound up marrying the director of this movie. Actually, Oh, you're kidding. I oh, it exactly. worked out
0: well for her. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, so yeah. the next song is...
1: skip the indian track when they listen to sergeant pepper this thing is mm-hmm. a masterpiece and you should really give it a shot mm-hmm. um i am just i'm just blown away by this song i mean uh, here's a here's a guy who like in the span of a year has learned enough about the modes and the construction of of indian ragas yeah to write something that is so respectful of the form and the style yeah um and and just created something for, for this album. And this is his only contribution to Sgt. Pepper. And it it's just, it's, a, it's an astonishing piece of work. And, yeah. you know, I don't know how much, if any, help he had on, yeah. on the arrangement. But I know that George Martin could not communicate with the Indian players because he didn't know the terminology. He didn't know the, the form. George was out there. George knew... I can't remember the names of these syllables that are used to sort of communicate the rhythm he knew all that stuff he had studied that stuff and he yep. was able to get the performance out of them And then george martin later wrote a, a beautiful string part to go with it where yes he, yes he i i'm sure collaborated with george because the articulation of all the string parts are are really sort of in tune with 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 the, the modality of the song and and it's just it's just an amazing piece of work plus it's lyrically beautiful. and you know, for me, I just I, I assume that 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 you're hearing this thing start with this sonic landscape that is unfamiliar to most people in the West. yeah. and and he starts the song with a line that that could be said by a guru giving ongoing lectures, <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's probably. Something that I mean, this was a time where people were starting to really look for spirituality again, look yeah. inward, and he starts to. We were talking. What's the line? Uh, we about, were talking just, about the space between yeah. it all, and the people who hide themselves behind a wall of illusion. So, okay, well, we've been we've been listening to pop songs for the last 20 minutes, and all of a sudden you're fucking dropping this hammer of serious
2: <laughs> yes. introspection, yes. and
1: and you know, and the odd guy high out of his mind. Who goes, How did he know we were just talking about that?
2: So, uh-huh. so yeah,
1: I just think it's it's just remarkable. Um, Love You Too, which was on Revolver, was like sort of a test run of this for Harrison. Mm-hmm. This thing is a masterpiece. It's just absolutely beautiful. And and um, and I don't buy any of the the arguments about cultural appropriation. I think that's all crap. I think this is this has this introduced people to the beauty that Indian music oh, provides absolutely. and. Uh, it's just an amazing piece of work.
0: I agree. I mean, first of all, to your first point, you know, George was an astonishing student.
2: Yes.
0: Um, and how bold of him to step up and, and do something like this. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's so bold and so incredible that he actually decided, like, created something like this. Like, yeah. to turn around that knowledge and then create something so extraordinary so quickly.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really an incredible feat. I agree with you
0: yeah yeah um to me this is a combination of his learnings all of his uh, exploration and, and learnings in combination with the asset you know i think it's kind of like it probably the clash of the, these two things made all of this so clear you know some of this sounds like you're on an acid trip you know yeah. but just like this idea of understanding this wall of illusion and never glimpsing the truth and you know that's kind of to me kind of acid um but it's also but, it, but it's also eastern philosophy it's also it is it's also it e- is
1: e- e- eastern philosophy and and just the idea that we are all connected that vibrations connect everything that vibrations are the basis of the universe which physics is actually proving now so it's 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 you know it's it's a uh, uh I don't know what, at what point, because I know that Harrison at one point really resoundly rejected acid. And he, he, he said he saw it under a microscope and it looked like rope. And he thought, I don't want to put that in my body. And then it I It was more that,
0: 68. That I was
1: think. more 68. Yeah. Well, so it, regardless, it, it, it works on either level because it, he was already deeply involved in, in, in Eastern philosophy and stuff. So it, 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 it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's crazy good
0: yeah it is and and i suspect that you know the, the trips that he had probably just illuminated the truth of you know their area of exploration you mm-hmm. know because they sort of mutually reinforce each other for a while right you know this is this is before they went on their trip to greece and they apparently did like a ridiculous amount of acid on that trip uh-huh.
1: and,
0: you know and that that was all good but yes i think the more and more he got into uh, meditation
1: right he rejected the other
0: interesting and they're not doing a ton of meditation before this he is doing you know this is before they he writes this before they meet the maharishi but he has gone to india and is studying right um so but but the his ability to turn this around and to take it in and absorb it and communicate it is extraordinary
1: yeah it really is and also in in, the the lyric um you know it's 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 of that style and it's a beautiful piece of work, but the seriousness of it, I, I was kind of looking at it as like, this is George's um, we're more popular than Jesus moment, because to me, the, that, that, that more popular than Jesus thing that John did was one of the most profound things to come out of the Beatles, because what he was talking about was the ascending narcissistic culture of the West that, that you know. He, he, I think he said something like, I could have, I could have said TV is more popular than Jesus. So yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, materialism, narcissism, these things that were sort of taking us over, um, how sad that that is more popular than some kind of spiritual understanding. And that's kind of the same thing that George is saying here.
0: Yes. Now, I love this song, but I must admit that it took the album Love to make me love this song. Mm. Because what did they do
1: with it on Love? Did they combine it with
0: stuff? Yes, they combined it, they mashed it with Tomorrow Never Knows.
1: Oh, that's kind of cool.
4: That
0: way like it sort of penetrated my psyche more with with that combination. To me, you know, you had talked about doing the inner light as well, and I, I love this song a lot more. but the inner light is progress in my opinion, in terms of George isn't judgmental on the inner light. Like, this is just like a young person thing or a yeah. new person to this, you know? But there's a little bit like, we are the enlightened ones and if all those dumbass older people knew more, you know, that they wouldn't die not knowing. But the mashup, I don't know, sort of the more um, enlightened lines came to life for me.
1: I also think that he, he disarms a lot of that. Isn't there like laughter at the end of the track? Yes, yeah. yes there I is. Think, but I, think, he, yes. I think he disarms a lot of that, the, the sort of, the notion that the interpretation is accusatory with that. I mean, I I think that's, I mean, it was, maybe it was a last minute save.
0: I think so. Like, apparently that was his suggestion. He didn't want it to be too serious and to remind people. Yeah.
1: You know, but, but, but I appreciate that. I appreciate that it's heavy. I appreciate that in the midst of this album that's filled with whimsy and charm and that, that, that the seriousness of the times is maybe reflected in like, we got to figure shit out people, you know, I mean, that's, yeah. I appreciate that.
0: I do too. And that's the thing is that I never skipped it. It was just never one that I sought out, but I yeah. seek it out on love because yeah, that yeah. to me,
1: the inner light is, is, is a more, is, is a, is a more sort of um hybrid kind of song and that it's, it's, it's it's inching its way back to pop music somehow. Yeah. But yeah. This is, this is definitely immersed in
0: well, and John says that this is this was his favorite of Georgia songs in the Beatles. And, oh, is that right? Uh, yep, within yep. you or inner light. Yeah, within you, without you. Know. Whereas Paul loved uh, the inner light.
2: Oh, wow.
0: And you know, John. He says it's one of my favorites of his too. He's clear on that song. His mind and music are clear. That is his innate talent. He brought that sound together. So that was John in 1980, and. He said uh, in Lennon remembers. He also said that within you, without you, was his favorite mm. of George songs. Wow! Yeah. yeah,
1: but you know, it's a it's it's a pretty good good piece <laughs> of work. I got to say,
0: yeah, it's a pretty good And so, like, my criticism is just kind of
1: no. I totally understand you mm-hmm. what you're saying.
0: Yeah, but like I said, it was kind of rectified by the new mashup, and I love mashups. Like, that's mm. I love mashups well, in I've general. I gotta say,
1: I think what I've heard of love, and just generally what I what, what I've heard from from Giles Martin, I think he's been doing an, an extraordinary job with all the reissues and the, and the remixing and stuff. It's just, it, it's, I, I was lucky enough to hear the, the, the Dolby Atmos mix of, of Sgt. Pepper at the Dolby Theater with all the speakers around. And while I would never want to listen to music that way, yeah. the, the, the appreciation I had for the recording of his father and what he yeah. was able to do because you can hear so discreetly everything when you listen to that kind of environment. And it's just, it's just, it's just amazing. Wow. Yeah.
0: yeah. What, what he did was really bring a lot of incredible songs, like give us a new way of looking at them. For, so for something like uh, being for the benefit of Mr. Kite is like now one of my all time favorite Beatles songs, or at least from Pepper. And uh, you know, he does a mashup with Helter Skelter and uh, I Want You, She's So Heavy. Mm-hmm. And it's incredible. Wow. It was like an incredible. All three of those songs I absolutely adore. But I also loved it because it grounds the album and gives it depth. And it also makes it part of the adventure. Like when I was young, listening to this always made the Beatles seem so expansive, you know? Yep. It was just like it was. A different part of the world, you it's know. Also, it's
1: also so interesting to see a guy who's who's whose creativity is being stifled in a group, who who can't sort of find an entree doing the same thing, the same job that the other guys are doing. Yep. So he finds something that that he feels really passionate about that's that's completely different, that is completely his own, and just brings that into the equation. And it's beautiful. And it's a similar thing to this this style of slide guitar playing that he created, yep. which doesn't sound like anybody else playing slide guitar, but he found something that was that was innately his own and and brought it in. And it's, it's completely unique.
0: You know, that's a great point. When I was thinking about this in the past week, knowing we were going to discuss it, I thought that too, like it was an extraordinary move on his part to say that I, I got to do my own thing. And what he did was bring something that he was truly passionate about. Like, you know, when when George says, I'm going to do me for a while, like, this is George. This is him doing what he loved and was interested in. And, you know, he couldn't quite break through Lennon McCartney, but he was able to bring this to the Beatles, you know, and kudos to them for allowing the different interests. The When I'm 64, yep. this and allowing the Beatles to house all of that, you know, yeah. and it's beautiful. And I wonder if the Beatles had continued, you know, with Abbey Road, George brought something and here comes the sun. I'm sure his role would have increased. I mean, he was just writing great stuff, you know? Yeah,
1: absolutely. No, so, I mean, you, you know, because one of the things about Get Back, you're, you're watching this and you're kind of going, wait, wait, you, you're, wait, you're putting on Dig It, but you're going to ignore is Isn't it a pity? I mean, it's like, you know, those are great songs and, Great yeah,
0: song. Yeah. Well, George could have been George could have been advocating for those yeah. a little bit more vehemently. Yeah, I think I
1: had read that he kind of held stuff back. because, He wasn't sure what the Get Pack project was even going to wind up being. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's yeah, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean that that's that could be a song we talked about too, because I absolutely love that song.
1: Yeah, it's a great song.
0: Okay, so onwards. So this one I'm gonna assume that when we were talking that you weren't sure whether or not some of these would meet the criteria. Right. Um, you know, and you were struggling about whether it really qualified for this series. And I said, for me, this series is about allowing anybody to advocate for the greatness of a song. And if you think that it has not been properly celebrated, then this is an opportunity. So I think this is one that actually definitely falls into this camp, at least now, maybe not in the 60s, but now. And so the next song that we're gonna talk about is Manny Lane,
3: there is a bar showing photographs of every head.
1: Lane yeah I mean you know uh, thinking about it it was like well who doesn't think Penny Lane is a masterpiece <laughs> right. mm, is there somebody that, you know obviously but and, it, and, it's, and, it's, and it's certainly not a hidden gem uh, but I think one of the reasons why <laughs> speaking as an ex-jean jacket one of the <laughs> reasons why I wanted to advocate for it is because the B-side gets so much cred as a masterpiece or, or uh, are they still work in double A sides at this point. Double remember. A sides,
0: yes, yes. Okay,
1: so so Strawberry Fields, it gets its its rightful due as a, as a yes mind blowing masterpiece. Yes, yes. And and because uh, it's more radical, I guess I understand that. Yes. But Penny Lane, from not only as a song but as a record, is just perfect. It's just absolutely perfect, and it's one of Paul's basic patents. Um, it's, it's a song that's been copied many, many times in different ways. It, it, to me, it's, it's Paul expanding on For No One.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, in what way?
1: Uh, be, just musically, because it's a simple sort of descending piano thing. It's just that this version of it is much more joyful. But they're both basic patents. I mean, f- For No One kind of gives birth to uh, A Rose for Emily that the Zombies did. That's very similar, or uh, even Crosby, Stills, Nash Young. Our House is the same kind of uh, song structure, a, a very similar piano part. But Penny Lane, you know, it doesn't—it doesn't have a French horn; it has trumpets. But it's—it's it's still this other subgenre that McCartney creates of Baroque pop, mm-hmm. and and it's uh, it's like to me, it's like where, where Strawberry Fields is this sort of beautiful but somewhat unnerving acid trip Mm -hmm. penny lane to me feels like this i don't know this this like chill afternoon smoking weed on a stoop and taking in all these (laughs) wonderful childhood (laughs) memories and uh and then you know and to this day i mean think of like uh there's a michael blue blaze song called haven't met you yet there's a a Mm -hmm. sarah barella song called love song they're both penny Lane they're Mm. they're they're the same yes they are actually they are the same basic dna as penny lane and it's just it's just a remarkable track i just love it
0: there's a musicologist named uh, howard goodall who did um have you ever seen this he does a deep dive into a bunch of beatles songs and you know what makes them so extraordinary and um howard goodall he's a british it was on bbc or something like this and i i highly recommend it and it was interesting to me when he pulled apart Penny Lane because something that sounds like Strawberry Fields Forever sounds complicated, but Penny Lane doesn't. Penny Lane kind of sounds just perfect and easy and, you know, euphoric. And Mm -hmm. he pulled it apart and he said, like, there's so much going on to make it sound like that.
1: That's exactly true.
0: You know, like there's four different piano parts that you don't even know that are there. No, The,
1: the arrangement... I mean forget forget the the lovely lyric and and the nostalgic feeling that that it provides and f- for the for the singer and everything but the the arrangement itself is is it's it's the perfect it's, it's the perfect juxtaposition of of Strawberry Fields because Penny Lane is remarkably tidy <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, and Strawberry Fields is this weird erratic chaotic it's like it's like general relativity and 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 quantum physics it's like two completely different things that can't both possibly be true, but they're both true.
0: Yes. I think of them as two great artists. Like if we were thinking of painters, there's just, you know, there's two different kinds of painters doing the same subject. And, you know, Paul loves Magritte and this is kind of, to me, it is surreal. You know, parts of it are so bright and shiny, but there's something a little bit off and strange about it too. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I agree. And. You know, I read this, uh, an article on a blog called the Ebert test, and I had thought something similar, but not articulated it in this way. And so I really love it. He said, Paul, this is a bit of a paraphrase, but he says, Paul will make you feel that the world is okay. John might make you feel that you were okay. And so, you know, I think that like in, in Paul's lyrics so often, he's saying things will be okay. The world is okay. And this to me portrays the world, like his world is being kind of bright and shiny and interesting, but positive. It's kind of like there's this euphoric feel of this song. Whereas John's is so muddled and confused, but you kind of feel okay because if John Lennon's like this, you know, he, it's kind of like, I feel like that too, you know? And um, so they're interesting mirrors of each other on, on the same theme or reflections on the same theme.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and as they're both childhood reminiscences, mm-hmm. you know, McCartney's is more grounded and mm-hmm. Lennon's is a bit more traumatic.
0: Mm-hmm. It is, it is completely. But I think um, what's interesting about Penny Lane too, is that like things we said today, to me, there is both this euphoric, brightness that's so like it's in my mind Penny Lane is bright colors like primary bright colors bright blue skies that he mentions Um, but also there is an element of melancholy in it again This is the ultimate Paul, or one of Paul's main prototypes for Paul's best work is this combination of euphoria and nostalgia, yeah. or, or or melancholy, yeah, you yeah. know, almost. Um,
1: a lot of melancholy.
0: I don't know if that's just elements of, you know, he had a very warm, loving childhood, and the Beatles creation happened then, and it must have been extraordinary. But his mother died and like i said it's all over the lyrics and so i don't know if that element of sort of an unconscious or unacknowledged sadness is what makes his work deeper you know than- well
1: yeah and it's but it's it, it it comes in large measure with mccartney from melody as opposed to lyric yes and and that's there's, right there's a longing in penny lane that you just feel yes. in the melody and and it's it's, it's incredibly emotional.
0: But that's an important point. Cause I think that, you know, when you hear about Paul's story songs, you know, it's kind of like, well, they're not as deep, but I feel Penny Lane. Like you said, it is emotional. It is both so beautiful and so sad. You know, they do this project of thinking like, I think that they had talked about um, doing an album based around childhood and apparently Paul's quoted as saying that he wants to do a song based on Penny Lane in 1965. After John writes in my life that at one point had Penny Lane on it, Paul apparently said, I'd like to do a song on that. So this has been germinating for a long time. These guys, they're always bouncing in a conversation with each other. This is uh, this is one of my favorite quotes from Paul from 1966. I, I'm not sure the source, I think I did track it down. And he said about his his working relationship with John is he said the way we work is like we just whistle. John will whistle at me, and I'll whistle back at him, and he'll whistle back at me, and sometimes we'll keep whistling at each other for days. And I thought that was so nice that that's like they're having an ongoing conversation, you know.
2: Right. Yeah, yeah. That
0: just you know, like you said, the competition, but it's not a competition. It's like a constant pushing each other in such a good way, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because John said that uh, Strawberry Fields Forever, he was imagining it as a conversation. And I think these two songs are kind of in com- conversation, maybe not consciously, but...
1: but... actually on your point of when these songs were actually started, there's actually uh, a film of John playing, this is 64, of John that's playing... That's right, Malabitha, that's right. And he's playing the intro lick to Strawberry Fields.
0: That's right, yes. Malabitha. So both of these masterpieces are a long time coming. Yeah, yeah. the germ
1: existed early.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I just think it's interesting that if this was connected more to In My Life, you know, that's a that's one of the de- great debated songs in Lennon-McCartney. There's only two, uh, really, that are they disagree with, you know, how much each other contributed. And that's one where John says that's mostly him. And Paul says that he wrote the melody for that one. And, you know, that's a disputed song, but it certainly that could have been inspiration for this song,
1: totally. you know? Yeah, very much so.
0: Yeah. The only reason I tend to believe Paul on that one is that in the mid seventies, he lists that as his favorite Lennon-McCartney collaboration. So it's weird to me if that, <laughs> if he didn't actually perform on that one, yeah, you right. know, yeah, but yeah. Um, but anyways, it's interesting if that's kind of like the stimulus for this one and that they're having this ongoing conversation. This does seem very, like you said, it seems like somebody who's high. It's somebody who's having a really great trip. Of course, the the sound of Paul's songs are where the emotion lies.
1: Often, yes. I mean, I mean, here's the thing. Paul had, McCarty's voice is just a fucking miracle. Oh, yeah. it's, it's just absolutely miraculous. And... And his range as a singer is, is twice that of John's. Yeah. And I think what that allows him to do is John's melodies are very horizontal. They don't yeah. really go too far up and yes. down. McCartney yes. has the ability to create melodies that are, he's just got a lot more, you know, arrows in his quiver. He can, he can, he can really take you places with melodically. And so, you know, that's, that's where a lot of his emotion comes from, comes in.
0: Yeah, it's funny because apparently John once said to Yoko, <laughs> Yoko wrote a song that she couldn't sing. And he was like, you write songs that you can sing. So, and and that's what I mean about, you know, John sort of being able sometimes to write a song that he can't quite sing because he's got Paul like Hard Day's Night or he can just be like, oh, he'll sing that part. Yeah, you exactly. know, or <laughs> Paul's early love of horses makes an appearance in the uh, video for this one. That's right, yeah. But I love the fact that you wanted to champion this one because I do think that this gets a little bit lost uh, in the discussion. And I was thinking about it, like why does strawberry fields have more love? And I wonder if it's because Because it's it's radical. It's radical. It's radical.
1: I mean, you know, that's, I mean, if if John was nothing else, he was a squeaky wheel. (laughs) So, you know, it's, it's, it is a masterpiece, but that I think the fact that it's a radical masterpiece it's kind of constantly going, "Hey, over here, over here!" And yeah, 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 the yeah. Other song is there that's just fantastic too.
0: Yeah, and also I think that he's so vulnerable in it, and you know, and, and that makes us connect with it um, more than say the lyrics of this one. Like, but you, I, I love your point that this is also connected because you feel it.
1: You feel it. <laughs> you, you feel, feel it. it. I mean, I agree with you lyrically. You're 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 with John right from the get-go. And, yeah. and that's carrying the emotional narrative. Um, but the emotional narrative is being carried by be the ball.
0: Well, onwards. I'm so happy you chose the next song because, you know, it made me think about this as a unique piece of work versus um, part of a larger whole. The next song that we're going to talk about is uh, The End. This is part of the suite, you know, the long, right. uh, the, the medley. But just having to focus on it as a, a unique, discreet piece of work was really exciting. So tell me, why did you choose this?
1: Well, I chose this song because, despite the, the, the last five minutes of our conversation, this is a McCartney lyric that I think is the best couplet that they ever wrote, and. I agree.
3: And in the end
1: it's it's an astonishing way to end an album mm-hmm. It's an astonishing way to end the beatles whether Incredible. whether he knew it or not, I suspect he did know it, but did but it's it's i mean what a fucking punctuation to have this and then adding to that, apparently McCartney is i gotta find this on my phone I tweeted this out a while ago, so um. What I what's what another point on this is that apparently McCartney is going to be writing a Broadway musical of It's a Wonderful Life, Mm -hmm. and I watched it over the holiday. And there's there's a moment where um, uh, Uncle Uncle Billy and George Bailey are in his father's office after he passed away, and there's a sign under his picture. That says all you can take with you is that what you've given away and it just struck me yeah he's the perfect guy to be writing that musical because that's this that's the sentiment that he ended that band with and that's just pretty great anyway that's that's the, that's the reason i chose it is the lyric
0: oh yeah uh, i mean the lyric is so exquisite it's so perfect you know it's john said it's cosmic and philosophical and you know, it draws, in we talked about before the, the influence of the Ashers, you know, Paul in the lyrics talks about his education and love of Shakespeare, but she was also a Shakespearean actress. So that was around him. And, you know, it's incredible that he leaned into Shakespeare and the way he ended a play. And, it, you know, it sort of, it codified, it epitomized the whole philosophy of the Beatles mm-hmm. perfectly, yep. so beautifully.
2: Yep.
0: And... It's so deep, and actually, I even like the like the way it starts. That uh, oh yeah, all right, are you gonna be in my dreams tonight? You know, I called my podcast "One Sweet Dream" because I think the idea of the dream is is, is a big deal, actually. And, and John and Paul constantly refer to dreams in, in throughout the Beatles. Even, and uh, even,
1: even after, when it's even over, even <laughs> after,
0: yeah. number nine, dream, exactly. All,
1: well, the dream is over.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, that, and then he reverses himself, yeah, which exactly. is which is the nice part. But um, so I think it was an important idea. But this, are you going to be in my dreams tonight? Actually, interestingly, even. And get back. Jackson cut it, but when Paul walks in, did you know this? That John goes, uh, he's like, hey, I dreamt about you last night. Were you? And John literally thought that Paul was in his dream. He's like, did you have that same dream? It was like you were in my dream. Hey,
3: did you dream about me last night?
0: And so either Paul could be nodding back to John right. here, or I take it as this is the experience of the Beatles. You know, this was a big dream that they were all sharing. Yeah. And, you know, and then he make, he does this final couplet. And in the end, the love you take is the equal to the love you make. And I find it interesting to know, and I just learned this in the past couple of days, that Paul went back in and that's just Paul singing, love you, love you. And to me, it's, reflecting this idea of the shared love like they gave all the love they got like talk about the enormous love that they created in the world you know but to your point you know we talked about this in the the breakup series and this was something that one day when I was deeply thinking about what it would be like to be the other three of you know it's the story is generally that Paul wanted the Beatles to continue and he was the only one that was still in it and I don't believe that, first of all, but also I was thinking, what would it have been like for John or George or Ringo to have been hearing this from Paul? And whether or not Paul did this consciously or unconsciously, he is saying goodbye, even if it's just in case. He is going to the trouble of creating a couplet that says the end, you know?
1: He is. And even I'd go even further in that in that the whole buildup with the exchange of guitar solos with Ringo solo, yes, it's, it's almost like the credits of a movie that lasted for eight years. You know what yes. I mean? It's like, it's like, it's, it really is. Um, it's the curtain call
0: and, it and it's, and it's great. Oh, it is the curtain call where each of them takes a step forward and, and you know, you clap at them. It's, it's extraordinary. And again, this idea of like, I don't think Paul wanted the Beatles to end. But I suspect that maybe unconsciously, he had been starting to recognize that with all the players, with all the situation, it couldn't go forward. And I think he probably did not recognize that fully deeply or didn't want to. It was maybe in denial until John said that he wanted the divorce. And of course, it's my perspective that John didn't necessarily want that, that it was a negotiation, but that Paul took him a little too seriously. I, I really do think that Paul took John too seriously and sort of said, okay, this is as far as I can go with this set of situations. You know, we we did a big d- deep dive into the 4442 meeting. And you know, there's a lot of talk about, well, Paul didn't want to give into this each having four songs. But I think that that wasn't the Beatles to Paul. It was like, whoever comes up with the best songs, like that, that is becoming a, a different monster than he, he bought into. You know, and so I'm very grateful that Paul, you know, had the ability to step up and do something like this for us because it's such a beautiful ending.
1: Yeah, it really is. It really is. And then, like the, and, you know, like the laughter at the end of Within You Without You, yes. your majesty shows up.
0: <laughs> and I love it because it would be too depressing otherwise. Yeah. You know, it's so the Beatles, it's so perfect. And I think one of the reasons why McCartney had such a down afterwards is he was exhausted. You know, like yeah. he showed up until he gave us the end. Yeah. And it's interesting that like this wasn't the last thing that they recorded. They continued onwards. But I wonder if you're John and you're hearing this and you have abandonment issues, whether you kind of go, OK, well, we're screwed now anyways.
1: You know, he's so mercurial. I, I, I it, it, you know, yeah. And then Wednesday, no. You know yes. what I mean? Yeah. who knows
0: yeah and he's also like this was a big um john heroin period yeah and so and also that
1: may have led mccarty to think also that they that that they were done that he didn't want to put up with that anymore because that must have been very hard to be to to deal with for him for mccartney in particular because you know your partner is not really there anymore
0: yeah or you can't connect with
1: yeah exactly
0: yeah i think that that was between klein and heroin. And John and Yoko doing heroin together. My heroine is
1: going to be the name of my next album if I ever make <laughs>
0: one. I'll be listening. Mine that sounds like heroin. a good. <laughs> Jesus
1: Christ.
0: Yeah. But between those two things, like Paul's got to feel like I can't reach him anymore, you know? And he managed to convince Paul that, he didn't want to be reached. And I don't think that was true. But, you know, that I don't I don't blame Paul for feeling like that, you know. Or like you said, it could be I don't want to do this. I have I have a newborn, you know, for whatever reason. I, I, I think that unconsciously he didn't even realize that he was giving in at this point. Right. I don't think it had to be the end of them personally. I think that they well could have continued and fixed things. But, you know, and one of the things that frustrated me when I was doing research for this is that every single write-up that I saw about this song, it started with McCartney saying, I wanted to write a couplet, so I followed the bard and wrote a couplet. Fine, okay. But then the next sentence is John saying, in his 1980 interview with Playboy, Lennon acknowledged McCartney's authorship by saying, that's Paul again. He had a line in it, and in the end, the love you get is equal to the love you give, which is a very cosmic philosophical line, which again proves that if he wants to, he can think. Um, and I'm so frustrated with reading that. Like, can we just dismiss some of John's bullshit, you know, comments about Paul? Because I can, you don't get that with any John song. You don't get like Strawberry Fields where Paul's like, well, I came in and couldn't figure it out. Yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah, it's just yeah. like, I'm, I'm frustrated with that immediately diminishes Paul. Cause yeah, you're like, also,
1: Oh, but it also, it also displays John's profound insecurity. I mean, that's that's what it really comes down to is is he's you know this guy is a savant and you know it's like I mean not to take anything away from John but but um McCartney's not doesn't have to diss John he he knows he's good
0: well John doesn't have to diss McCartney you're right it's just insecurity insecurity. because like I love I want you she's so heavy you know to the moon as well. So, yeah. you know, he didn't have to do that. I but know. my frustration is the way that culture has taken him too seriously, you know?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, and I think, look, I, I, I think that, that uh, McCartney got a lot of criticism toward the end, um, which, you know, most of which I think is, is not well-placed. I think that as, as you get into his solo career, his choices tended to underline some of the criticisms that were yes, I think false agreed. about agreed. the Beatles. Yes. And because McCartney, back to his work ethic, it was always chasing a hit. He was always, he had his ear to the radio yeah. and what he was able to do in the 60s when, when music on the radio was really good music, he was now having to do with music that wasn't so great. <laughs> so he was, trying yeah. to, he was trying to find inspiration and, and it led him into some pretty sappy areas to, to, for my taste. And that just underlined, you know, what was going on with the criticisms that he was getting earlier on, but uh, they were not justified in my view.
0: Well, that's, yeah. You know, I remember trying to get into McCartney and I really got into him when Wingspan came out and then there was hits and history. And I was just like, I just don't enjoy his hits. I still don't enjoy some of his hits. And I absolutely loved history. So I think you're right that when he's more commercial, especially post-Beatles, Those to me are always his worst songs. You know, um, Uncle Albert to me is my least liked song on Ram. I love it because that's when it's still a good combination. But later on to me, again, just like his hits less, but the, the good news is, is that there's 10 other cuts and they're amazing, yeah. you awesome. know? So, and, always, so I think- and
1: always, even with the hits, always you have to just acknowledge the craftsmanship. You have to be able to, you have to sort of say, well, this might not be hitting me emotionally, or maybe he's, you know, he's been listening to disco again
0: or whatever <laughs> it is,
1: but, yeah, yeah. But, but there's always a level of, uh, of craft that's, that's, that's astounding.
0: Yeah, and I must say, the more I've learned about his post Beatles career, I like am pretty knowledgeable right now. Now I like all those songs, but those came last to me. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. So, but I think you're right. He did, John was really savvy about pigeonholing Paul, and Paul kept reinforcing those, you know, some of those criticisms rather yeah. than, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. He didn't do himself a lot of favors in in trying to correct history because when he did, it just sounded like why are you why are you doing that you know we know but what are you going to do I, I i feel for him because he got a lot of shit that was undeserved
0: yeah but Paul can never compete with John when it comes to representing himself articulating his position John's just way better at it yeah and paul knows it Yeah. but anyways uh it was th- that's my only frustration I will argue that John and paul are equal geniuses but i I just wish that we would just dismiss some of John's remarks about Paul's songs, which actually does bring us to uh, the next song, which you are a brave man, and I'm so happy we're doing this. <laughs> so uh, the next song is... Joan was
3: quizzical, studied metaphysical science in the home. Late nights all alone with a test tube. Swell Edison, major ring in medicine, calls her on the phone. Can I take you out to the pictures? John? But as she's getting ready to go, a knock comes on the door. Bang bang, that's well silver.
0: Maxwell Silverhammer.
1: I like an underdog. Um, you know, it's it is not my favorite Beatles song by any stretch of the imagination, but it has gotten ridiculous short shift in in my view. It's a jaunty song about a psychopath, and that <laughs> I mean that it, that looks great on paper. And uh, you know, it's it's a certain kind of song. It's like a song from a Broadway musical. Yeah. Um, uh, it's got you know, the elements of his immersion in the avant-garde by talking about pataphysics. Um, it's got, I think is I think the song suffers from the sweetness of Paul's voice. And I think that if it was sung by Randy Newman or if it was a kink song and Ray Davies with his wry attitude was singing, Mm -hmm, mm
2: um,
1: it would be a respected King song. It would be a respected Randy Newman song, even if John had sang it. It might have, mm-hmm. it might have had more. It might have had snarl. something to, to mitigate the whimsy of the yes, song.
0: Yes, yes, some snarl. Yeah. Yes.
1: But, but you know, John's crack about about Paul's granny music, you know, it rings a little hollow when you think about the fact that Lennon was singing the praises of Harry Nielsen, who made a career out of granny. Yeah,
0: exactly. So
1: it doesn't. It doesn't make any sense to me. It? Plus, it features a Moog synth in 1969. <laughs>
0: You know. Oh yeah, to to great effect. I mean, I, I agree with you. I think the issue with this song is production. I think it's too on the nose with the production. You know, like even in the um Abbey Road episode, we layered in Paul's bass from Come Together. And it made I think it made it sound cooler. Like in some ways, this is my frustration with John. John, you don't like it, help him with it. Yeah. You know, exactly. like Like step it up and help him with, cause for sure he's helped you with all your songs. Like he made Come Together, amazing. I don't know, maybe Paul was too overwhelming and just wanted to do it his way. I don't know what he was like at that point, but you know, they did work on this song a lot, not more than any other song. So, but I think that that's what it needed is more of a tension. Between if he's gonna have this jaunty little serial killer song, maybe that's what Paul thought the tension was, that it was a crazy subject with the jaunty tune, but it needed more snarl or yeah. cynicism or something.
1: Yeah, if you're gonna have that arrangement, absolutely. Because because it, it's 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 just you know, the, the whimsy is thick on that one. And it's some it's, it's a bit much.
0: Does Paul, can you think of a time where Paul actually does cynicism? Because maybe he doesn't. Maybe, like you said, that's a Ray Davies thing versus a
1: Paul's just not very cynical. <laughs> he's a he's a very optimistic guy, and and he, um, I just don't think he. I don't think he has that gene as much as certainly not as much as John does.
0: Um, Although the the Beatles did say that when they asked were asked who was the more, most cynical in the group, they said Paul.
1: Not in his art, though.
0: That is true. That is true. I
1: mean maybe he just, you know, saves it for private life. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah.
0: No, that's a great point.
1: So, I don't know.
0: So, you think that this is a good song but it was just it should have been sung differently.
1: I think I think that if if the track and the vocal had more of an edge yep. to to counter yeah the whimsical nature of the music, if 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 Ray Davies had sung it, it would it would not have the reputation that it has now. uh, That's just, to me, that's obvious.
0: Yes, I agree. Apparently, John showed up in the studio and just laid on a couch and watched Paul do this one. So there's a couple of elements that I think are interesting about this song. I think this is interesting because it's hilarious. It's kind of like you said, this is Paul's just flight of fancy. Like I think Paul is so angry at this point and unable to express it that he channels it into a psychopathic killer song and, you know, and tries to have fun with it. And you know what I mean? And it's kind of- The clang
1: is coming down on Alan Klein's head is what you're saying.
0: (laughs) Yes, and probably John and Yoko too. You know, it's kind of like, um, in my opinion, Paul is unable to articulate his anger. I think this is probably an issue for Paul McCartney. He's unable to- articulate his anger. He's unable to advocate for himself. John's so confused, Paul, with Yoko in the studio that I think he was unable to say, John, what the fuck are you doing? Why are you doing heroin? Why are you ruining our relationship? And why is Yoko in the studio? Because all of those things are not cool, you know? And I think he was confused by Yoko because she's his romantic partner. So Paul can't can't figure out what to say to John because he probably knows John needs... He probably knows John's needs help, but doesn't know how to do it. And, you know, so he can't advocate for the sacredness of their partnership. And I suspect John's original frustration with McCartney is for not appreciating the sacredness of their partnership. You know, this is my own opinion. I think John's uh, was deeply angry at McCartney, still, still at this point, for something. And then he's hurting Paul, and Paul is deeply angry and can't quite articulate it and comes up with this insane song that is pretty funny. Like it's a well-crafted song. It's pretty funny. But I also think it's like, it's criminally under-investigated as kind of like, can we look at Paul McCartney's psyche and what he's going through at this time and how it's pretty impressive that he just turns his feelings into this insanity. <laughs> yeah
1: well yeah better than actually acting it out certainly exactly exactly
0: i mean paul could have been like blowing up the beatles and he could have been storming out and you know he didn't do any of that he got it together and wrote the end yeah um and it's got some great lines i do think it's got some great lines yeah no it's a smart lyric for sure well thank you for championing this song and uh <laughs> okay so you know for a jean jacket or an exchange an evolved progressed jean jacket ex-jean jacket you are choosing a lot of uh, mccartney songs
1: well I, I i hung out my jean jacket when i was in my early 20s when i when i first kind of recognized how much paul and george martin were responsible for some of the stuff that i accrued to john uh, okay. as a musician so and also you know john john sort of appeals to the sort of uh, you know defiant male adolescent yes
0: absolutely you know so but you know the all my exploration of john now some of the stuff like some of the stuff that we know about john is true but there is also another older more mature side of john that kind of gets buried like this john that's willing to progress and you know is always um so interested in in Self progression. I mean, maybe that was acknowledged always, but there's such a there's an, a, a nicer side to John, a kinder side, a more loving side to John that then is traditionally represented. You know?
1: Yeah, and I think John. I, I also think John was a very, very smart man. Yes, he was. He was a really intelligent guy, and that that informed, um, you know, his personal life in the sense that he understood that he had early damage, and he understood that he had to sort of address it and look at it. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's a pretty advanced thing for an English guy in the 60s to start doing. Yes,
0: yes, yeah. I, I think that John was a seeker and much more open-minded, and, and especially internally. Yeah. So, it was yeah. impressive. Okay, but your next song is...
3: Like so many girls Jenny Wren could sing
1: Yes, Jenny Wren. So, yeah, so I kind of lost interest in the Beatles solo work pretty, pretty quickly. Um, I think the last album of Paul's that I bought, that was that I bought contemporaneously with when it came out was uh, Red Rose Speedway and a lot of that left me cold I I did love big barn bed for some reason but a lot of that left (laughs) me cold and I had I had loved wildlife I thought I mean wildlife um
0: I love it I love wildlife too
1: oh it's great and and I know people were sort of were taken aback by how casual it was and what whatever but it it's still great and it's it's um uh anyway I'm digressing. So I was a huge fan of the first album. It was The first album was a, was a, was a major inspiration to me because he did it himself. I had been in bands, and um, the band dynamic was something that just drove me crazy. And I, that's why I learned how to, how to record and wanted to do it all myself. And that album, and there was a guy named Emmett Rhodes, who was also sort of yeah. a pop guy who made mm-hmm. records all on his own. And it was so inspiring to me. And then I loved Ram. I thought that was great. Anyway, by the time he gets to Red Rock Speedway, I start to lose interest. I start to lose interest with John uh, after Imagine. I thought sometime in New York City was just shit and didn't care for it at all. And then, uh, so after that period of time, as I went into listening dominantly to other kinds of musics, yep, yeah. um, I would occasionally check back in and listen to what they were doing. And they were always no
0: band on the run. I can't believe I you not, I
1: was not that big a fan of band on the run. I mean,
0: it's not my favorite either. I, I like the other albums all better. I actually quite like uh, Red Road Speedway, but yeah. I like
1: I, the things I like on Red Road Speedway, I, I, I think I might like more than the things I like on Band on the Run. Band on the Run's mm-hmm. a, a terrific record, don't get me wrong. It's again, it's really crafted incredibly well. Mm-hmm. Um, it just doesn't hit me emotionally. And, um, but the, the next album, that hit me emotionally was Chaos and Creation in the Backyard, which I think has some really great stuff on it. And it doesn't sound like he's chasing the hit.
2: Mm-mm. It doesn't
1: sound like he's listening to uh, pop radio and and just kind of kind of going, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. He's writing more from the heart. And Jenny Wren is is clearly a sequel to Blackbird, and mm-hmm. um, and just an amazing, beautiful fucking melody and a and a and a gorgeous lyric that does not rhyme i mean it's it's <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's one of those one of those songs where you go um wow this doesn't rhyme and it works and that's a rare thing and it's it's great so i i, I just i wanted people to, to to go out and seek out that song if they don't know it
0: yes you know it's funny because paul's got his themes and and so that is among his aviary bird (laughs) (laughs) themes. he loves his bird songs you know wings Uh um single pigeon Mm -hmm. um buses and birds those are his big themes he loves his buses buses and birds yep you know in fact i was thinking about that with penny lane it's like oh it's about a bus terminal you know a Mm. street where where he would change and it's, it's funny that he just had, I don't understand his love of buses. Well, he's, yeah,
1: he's, I mean, he's talked about that in, in interviews. I remember it's like, he that's, that's what he, he liked to do that. He liked to go ride on the bus, even after he yes. became famous. He liked to go ride on the bus.
0: Must, But what is it like to me? It must represent just freedom or something or expanding his world. I'd love to know what it represented to him. Cause yes, he seems to be obsessed.
1: I think, I think as a writer, it wouldn't surprise me to, to to hear that it it had to do with people watching, and a confined space, and just being be, being an observer as a writer, it's, yeah. it's it's like, you know, some people choose cafes, some people choose buses. You know,
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> Paul McCartney his buses. Yeah. yeah, well, he talks about that a lot in the lyrics book again too about how much he loved just being an observer oh. of people at a young age, like I, starting. I got that book. I
1: haven't read it yet. So.
0: Well, it's a tough, it's a tough one and there's good and bad in it. You know, the, the bad is that you, he says nothing about his lyrics, Oh, you know, that's the hard part is he says a lot of interesting stuff. So with Paul, it's always kind of triangulating the information. You know, he says it, there'll be a song where you're like, I'm dying to know what that meant. And he will not talk about it. Mm. But then in talking about other things, he reveals other stuff. So, Right. You know, the longer I've sat with it, the more I've come to enjoy it. But it was frustrating at first because I wanted to know what was underneath some of the lyrics yeah. and he doesn't expand on them.
1: Yeah. Oh, well. Yeah.
0: But there's a lot of good in there. Okay. A lot of good in there. So it's just like change your expectations. It's interesting.
1: I'm sure it is. I look forward I yeah. to reading it.
0: Yeah. I agree with you about Chaos being an extraordinary album.
1: It's a, it holds, the, the record holds together really well.
0: Okay, the final song is one I chose. It probably would have been more qualified as a song series song because I believe it has meaning in the Beatles' history. But nevertheless, my desire to discuss it was triggered by um, another song, Penny Lane, which we discussed. And uh, I think it is one that should be more known because regardless of its potential significance, it is a great song that should be more known. So my choice is... No, not that one. This one. I know i know by john lennon do you know this song like you said you stopped really paying attention
1: um you know it was one of the ones that i listened to in the day and never went back to and i went back and listened to it after you had mentioned it and i yeah. don't think it's a good song um but i think it's i think it is about his relationship with paul
0: yeah yeah I love
4: you more than yesterday.
0: Carney has said that Jealous Guy." John told him Jealous Guy" was about him, and that is an ex- one of my favorite John songs. So that I think is a...
1: Boy, is, is that a, a testament beautiful. to the value of rewriting. Yes! <laughs> because the original lyric is pretty tough. Pretty tough to listen it to. It is! Yeah.
0: You know, I must say that I have thought that too. You know, I, I'm somebody who definitely cares more about the music than the lyrics, but that is a great point too. I don't think I would have loved that song.
1: No. No, the, the 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 recasting of that melody. That melody's all all time melody. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, definitely one of John's best melodies. And yep. um, uh, it was saddled with this crazy hippy dippy nonsense, and uh, and then he made it real, and it was great.
0: Oh my God, you're totally right. That's a fabulous point. Um, and so you know that one I think is genuine. This one I don't love as much as a song. But I think Mind Games is an interesting album in that it was written when he had already separated from Yoko. You know, Mm -hmm. he was living, he was with May Pang at this point. It's kind of like he's apologizing and going through all of these emotions of a breakup now that he's kind of outside of, more so than Walls and Bridges, actually. I think the the Mind Games really is the breakup album of John and Yoko. Um, But... I think that this particular song is about Paul.
1: I don't think there's any question about it because John's smart enough to know that, that when he mentions yesterday, he's smart enough to know everybody's going to know it's about Paul or, he, or everybody's going to think it's about Paul if it's not, and he will change it or he'll change the line. Yes. But I, I think that, that the fact that that stuff is in there, you, you, you go, it's either about Paul or John wants us to think it's about Paul and does it really matter if those two things aren't the same because it's the same thing.
0: Well, I don't think John ever wants people to think it's a song about Paul. You know, he he said later, oh, it's about Yoko or something like that. Um, you he know, I, it's about I th- nothing. Yeah, it's about That's actually that's a good point. You can tell when a song is about Paul? Cuz about- cuz he says it's about nothing. Yep. Exactly, exactly. Um there's two things in songs that uh, I think are giveaways. He put wings in it. I I am quite certain, you know, like the song um, bless you has wings in it the song starting over which i think is 100% about paul has wings in it um and by the so,
1: way by the way the song woman is here there and everywhere he just rips him off i know so so maybe it's not about woman either <laughs>
0: <laughs> I personally I personally suspect that as well actually. Right. I think that John and Paul were having a lot of musical conversations that I th- think they were getting back together. Oh. Um, or at least trying to. Right. And it's very sad. Yeah. But it's funny because I think the songs from Paul to John. They're hard to read. Like, poor, I feel so sorry for John being kind of like, am I the dragonfly? Like, you know, it, like in Little Land Dragonfly, I suspect that's probably about John, but they're never explicit. And they're kind of in the music and poor John would probably be like, I think that's about me. Whereas John's songs to Paul are very, very explicit. Right. And I don't know if that's because John thinks that Paul needs explicit lyrics But this is one that I think, you know, it almost reads like a mea culpa, you know. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Um, I think this is a good stage for John. This is, you know, where he's kind of reassessing all these things that he blew up when he was going through that emotional period at the end of The Beatles. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's reconnecting it with Paul. And there's a few lines in here that I think are just giveaways. Um, First of all, it's the riff to... um, I've got a feeling. Right. And so, um, you know, I think anytime he, he does that, it's kind of like, pay attention, Paul. I think, right. don't you think? Yeah. Like something like that. Paul's going to hear it anyways. Yeah. You know, oh, I know that riff. Yeah. And then that was a joint song between them. And then he says in here, like he sort of is apologizing and, and saying that I've only, I'm only understanding and I know where it's coming down from. You know, probably I know who was influencing me. But he says these couple of interesting things. You know, he says, I'm sorry, but I could never speak my mind. And then he says, and I'm guilty, but I could never read your mind. And these are important notions that, and even in Get Back, one of the elements that was cut, I I know why he's not communicating, it's because he um, expects us to know what he's thinking like he wants this telepathy thing you know and, and paul's like we don't have it and we can't do it and it's so frustrating
3: well that's 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 the trouble is it because uh, that's it it's like with your, with our heightened awareness the answer is not to say anything you it? but it isn't because i mean we screw each other up totally when we don't do that because we're not ready for your heightened vows of silence we're really not ready we don't have to fuck each other's talking right? about uh, you know we all just sort of get the to... core but uh, Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, But but see, that's it. That's why John doesn't say anything. (laughs) Because he, you know, he just, that was was something the other
0: day. Speaking of this magical thinking, I think that John wants that. He talks about wanting telepathy in his, his interviews in the 60s. And I think he thinks like if Paul and I are as connected as I think we are, Paul should know what I'm thinking. Right. And then in 73, he's kind of going, okay, I'm sorry. I never said when I wanted and I'm guilty because I didn't know what you wanted. And I thought I could, I couldn't read your mind, you know? And then the next paragraph is I know what I was missing. And, you know, in John thought dear boy was about him, whether or not it is or not, I don't know. I suspect partly about him, partly about Mel C. You know, I think Paul was sort of it was a blanket about everybody who had not appreciated him. Um, but but he says, I hope you never know, dear boy, how much you missed. And, you know, he repeats this. And so this, I know what I was missing, you know, but now my eyes can see. Um, I put myself in your place as you did for me. And so I think he's starting to say like, okay, look, I'm trying to understand where you are coming from and I'm starting to see it now. And then this is what I find interesting in your point of it having yesterday in it. It's today, I love you more than yesterday. And so, again, when I hear yesterday in a song, because this was so important to them and their relationship, it's kind of like, okay. And then I was like, well, what's the today I love you more than yesterday? And I think I love you more could be from in my life, you know, this Mm -hmm. disputed song, maybe not, but I think it's interesting that he sang to Paul that if it's to Paul, he's saying that it's not, I haven't lost the love, you know, yeah. that's, that's the message is that I still love you just as much, you know, or,
1: or he's saying um, yesterday is this totem yesterday is this, 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 I think psychologically important song for John's, you know, experience of Paul and, 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 and what happened after that point in the Beatles yeah. But it's a song that John understands how great it is. I mean, he says it in How Do You Sleep. So mm-hmm. so he could be saying as much as I love that song, I love you more. Mm. You know, I mean it could be just a statement of affection for for McCartney. My 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 thing is that you start a song with the riff from I've Got a Feeling, you have Yesterday in there. There's no way John didn't know people would interpret it that way. Whether or not it's actually about that. So at that point it's about it, whether he likes it or not.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. So. Well, also, he says, and I know it's getting better all the time as we <laughs> share in each other's mind. So, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. The, when I see getting better, he's, he mentioned that getting better is in a couple of John songs.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's the time that, the, you know, they end up taking acid together when John accidentally takes it in when they're recording getting better. So hmm. this idea of, again, this could be insane, but I don't know. I, it says, and I know it's getting better all the time as we share in each other's minds. And I was like, that sounds familiar, actually. And this is from Derek Taylor, from Derek Taylor's 50 Years Adrift. He said that um, when Paul came, he said, this is a quote here, Paul and Mal Evans came to stay with us somewhere in the late spring of 1967. Paul and Mal, this time, were full of tales of... This here LSD and what it could do. Unrecognizable psyches, unfamiliar heads and shoulders, the voice of Paul's, but the tone was God's. Paul said he and John had this fantastic thing, which wasn't very informative. So I pressed him to flesh it out. Incredible, really. Just looked into each other's eyes, like just staring and then saying, I know, man, and then laughing. And it was great, you know? And then he says, realizing he wasn't getting through, Paul said, you just have to try it. So, you know, and I read that one. It's like this idea of them looking at each other saying, I know. Um, I thought, well, he talks about getting better, you know, reading each other's minds or whatever. I thought maybe that's all connected. I think it is personally. So I think, uh, I think it's a beautiful song in terms of like an explanation song. I don't think it's one of John's great songs. But I think it goes unrecognized. And I think they're having... A conversation I don't think it's a one-way street between right. them you know yeah and and I think this is very lovely because this comes out mind games and band on the run come out right at the same time mind games comes out slightly before and it's got this lovely song on it and then you know and then um, let me roll it to you it comes out on band on the run so it's kind of like you know, Paul's not apologizing. I think Paul's probably terrible at, I think John's probably better at apologizing and admitting he's wrong. Although he tends to blow things up more too. So, you know, he has to, but I feel like at the same time, they're both, you know, Paul saying, let me roll it to you. Let's, you know, I love you. Let's smoke a joint, whatever. And John saying, I'm sorry. I didn't know. Like you said, the, the, I love you more than the song yesterday. I think it could connect to, you know, um, in my life, but I think it's an important song between them because the, their relationship really does strengthen to the point that John almost went to New Orleans after this song. Oh well, yeah, yeah. So, anyways, still lovely. I love how they continue to talk through songs.
1: Yep, absolutely. No, it's fascinating, and uh, you know, it can it continues the the, the psychodrama that. It's just so fascinating i want the director's cut to come out of get back
0: <laughs> <laughs> i know we need an, we need the white album if you could find a white album cut that would be great yeah. too yeah 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 okay great well thank you for all of this time this is wonderful thank you for all your brilliant remarks thank You're you welcome. for joining
1: You're welcome congratulations on the podcast it's terrific
0: thank you michael That concludes this episode of Hidden Gems and Unsung Masterpieces. I want to thank Michael Penn for his terrific choices and wonderful insights, and for just being such a fabulous guest. I've really enjoyed our conversation, and I hope you did too. Now, before I wrap up, I have a few additional odds and ends to mention. First, I asked Michael to identify which songs from his list made it onto the Unsung Masterpieces list versus Hidden Gems list. He lists the following as unsung masterpieces. She Said, She Said, Within You, Without You, Penny Lane, The End, and Jenny Wren. And anytime at all, things we said today, The Family Way, and Maxwell Silverhammer are viewed as hidden gems. I would include I Know, I Know in this bucket as well. Let us know what you think about this list and the categorization. Second, I wanted to make the point again about Within You and Without You. I do think it's a majestic masterpiece of a song that is so critically important to the album, Sgt. Pepper. It grounds the album and gives it so much depth. So I don't want my criticisms to diminish my great appreciation of this song. I just happen to like the drum and bass version better. Side note about Jane Asher, as I mentioned in the episode, I think the McCartney-Asher relationship has been unexplored and her importance has been underrepresented in the story really for two reasons. One, obviously, is Asher's refusal to speak about her relationship with McCartney following their, in an effort to reject being defined by their relationship for the rest of her life, which seems to have been a good idea for her. And of course, Paul, as a result, does not really speak about their relationship either out of respect for her. But Barry Miles also gives us another clue to why this relationship may be a little bit underrepresented. Miles interviewed McCartney extensively for his book, Many Years From Now in exchange for Paul having the final edit of that book. Miles said that in the end, McCartney only asked for two edits. One was the entire removal of a girlfriend Paul had seen on and off for years. And the other edit requested was to downplay Jane Asher's presence in McCartney's life. This was because the book was written when Linda McCartney was battling cancer. And McCartney was very sensitive to that fact and he didn't want the book to be read. And I quote, as the Paul and Jane story. And so he asked for Jane's involvement in his life during the Beatles period to be minimized. And as a result, her importance, I think, is somewhat minimized overall. Third, an additional point about I know, I know. I was terribly remiss for not having mentioned a potential connection to the song Some People Never Know from Paul's Wildlife album. never know seems to be in part celebration of paul and linda and in part a message to someone who doesn't recognize something it's difficult to say because the lyrics are confusing on this song as they are on many of the songs from wildlife but i suspect one element of this song may be directed at lennon so this may be a connection to the title i know i know john may be responding to that song or it could be as discussed a mention of the phrase that they said to each other on their acid trip on the night of the Getting Better recording session. Still, some people never know is a song for another time in this series, as is the song Woman. I love Michael Savvy observation about that song because I've always noticed the connection to the melody of Here, There and Everywhere. And by the way, John also makes a connection to Here, There and Everywhere in the song Instant Karma, which I discussed with Duncan Driver in the One Sweet Dream episode on Instant Karma. Apparently, John particularly loved this song, so perhaps it is his way of reminding Paul of his love or of his high regard for Paul and his songwriting. But also notable in the song Woman is the line, I love you, yeah, yeah. I've always wondered if this was a response to the song Silly Love Songs, which apparently Lennon believed was partly directed at him. Especially the refrain, I love you. Interesting? Intriguing? Do we know? Absolutely not. As always, I want to make it clear that these are just interpretations. They're speculative and obviously unproven. And so please take these discussions in this spirit and with a grain of salt. I think there could be some truth to them, but who knows? These men wrote hundreds of songs, and I assume the bulk of their work was not to each other. However, I think hidden within, or maybe not so hidden within, are songs to each other. I find this plausible, given that these men considered each to be their best friend. And they worked so intimately together for 12 years. And as a reminder, Lennon said in 1967 that they communicated through music because this was the fastest and best way for them to communicate. So, in my opinion, that's good support for looking at some of the conversation between them. And that's not to say that Linda, Yoko, Jane Asher, even Cynthia Lennon were not inspiration to both these men. So to summarize... I'm saying that we can't know exactly what these songs are about, but we can speculate based on what we know of these men and their relationships and the context. This is done constantly in culture, and that brings me to my final point. I want to pick up on something that Michael said about the song, I Know I Know. Michael said that when you start a song with a riff from I've Got a Feeling, you have the word yesterday in the lyrics. There's no way that John didn't know people would interpret it that way, meaning that it was about Paul. But the thing is, For the most part, they haven't. There have been countless discussions about the songs between Lennon and McCartney, and I've never seen this on the list. I've often seen this song attributed to Yoko, and who knows, she may well be the target, we don't know. But so often Paul isn't even considered as a potential subject or target, despite the fact that the song contains many Easter eggs about him. And I think that says something important about how we view the Lennon-McCartney relationship. The fact that Paul isn't even viewed as a worthy subject for Lennon reflects how we see them. In general, John's love for Paul goes unacknowledged. I bang on about this constantly, not because I think John's love for Paul was greater than Paul's love for John, but because John's respect, admiration, and adoration for Paul is almost entirely missing from the Beatles story. And yet... When you dig deeper, you realize how prevalent, how pervasive it is. But you have to dig because it was buried. I think one of the reasons that John went so overboard with the John and Yoko love story was to bury the Lennon-McCartney creative love story. And it worked. It erased John's commitment to Paul from the public's imagination. Everything became about Yoko. Every song, even songs like Girl, which were written before John even met Yoko, are now in some way attributed to Yoko. Paul, of course, did not mythologize in the same way. He and Linda were much more measured about their romance. I think today Paul doesn't emphasize his romance with Linda because he's not conflicted about it. He doesn't feel the need to explain it. And the public doesn't seem to be conflicted about it. So he doesn't talk about it. The same cannot be said his relationship with Lennon, which is why Paul often talks about John, I believe. It's because he's trying to reclaim the importance of their friendship and partnership, which is misrepresented for so long. Basically, since 1970. It's almost been erased. If you don't believe me, pick up any Beatles book. So many start with the premise that Lennon and McCartney was an asymmetrical relationship. I can tell you from all of my digging that this idea of an uneven or unequal relationship is absolutely false. As everyone close to them said, their bond was deep, and the love and respect was mutual. So when Paul bulks at portrayals in movies like Backbeat or Nowhere Boy, it's because he doesn't see his experience reflected. And this song, I Know, I Know, is a perfect example of us all missing what was in plain sight. Finally, as a reminder, this is the beginning of this series and there will be plenty of time to cover songs by all of the Beatles. I know this episode and the last one were quite McCartney dominant, but I'm quite sure future episodes will favor other Beatles. And the fact of the matter is that McCartney has a huge back catalogue and has been particularly undervalued and underrated, so it is unsurprising that many of these songs are being championed. The same holds true for a number of Lennon star and especially Harrison songs. So I'm quite sure they will be discussed in future episodes. Thanks again for listening. I want to give a shout out to the websites, the Paul McCartney project, the Beatles Bible and the blog, Amoral two, which are all incredible resources. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving a five star rating or review, uh, or give it a shout out on social as it helps other people learn about the podcast. Also, I love hearing from you, so please feel free to send a message or drop me a line. The podcast will be back very soon with a previously mentioned Get Back episodes that dive deeply into some of the themes found within the Get Back film. The next one is uh, with musician Martin Carr, and it is a goodie, so stay tuned. Until next time, take care. Bye bye.
4: believe in an order Any place where you place And the red line you drew is a bloodline It's you who'll be winning this race But I can hear as well, who'd have guessed what were the odds, when they said you were special, always right, never wrong, so clearly it is destiny, that the world is all yours, not for long, I can hear it coming A revival Love that's good